How's it going, everyone? Tom from Pivotal Film here. Uh, since the year 2020 is nothing but a series of open-hand slaps to the face, you should not be surprised to find out there was a storm here in Connecticut, and uh, p power to a large portion of the state was knocked out, along with uh, some trees that have made some of the roads that I used to get to the Pivotal Film Studios impassable. Um, uh, so this week, instead of doing a new episode, because I'm also in a place that has really shitty internet uh i put together this huge christopher what i'm calling a christopher nolan super pod um it's gonna be it's a comp compilation of all of the times we've mentioned christopher nolan since the movie conversation in 2020 has centered so much around christopher nolan's tenant i figured this would be a kind of uh topical thing it's gonna start with mario's uh batman begins conversation go to the dark night and then end with our inception conversation so i hope you like it it's a long one and we will be back next week with some new movies and uh, a new list thanks a lot One of the first episodes of this podcast had Tom talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, a movie I didn't Ooh. see. Um, last superhero movie I saw this year, uh, the only superhero movie I've seen this year is Avengers Infinity War. You didn't see Black Panther? Oh, right. I was really drunk. But yeah, I did see it. <laughs> and it was early. It was on year. Netflix. It was on, no, it was on Netflix. Oh, okay. I, I, I waited until it, it was on Netflix to watch it. Um, I'm not... A superhero guy, really. Mm, they're fun. They're goofy. They're okay. At 88, Tom had Dark Knight. A movie I thought was good, but in my opinion, sort of an inferior version of Heat. <laughs> with, uh, with really exceptional performances and great cinematography by Wally Feister. Uh -huh. Solid direction. But I, I knew I needed to have least one or two superhero films that really kind of encapsulated you know my childhood in the sense of our culmination of childhood because like i i did love the superhero genre i mm -hmm. watched all the batman movies in theaters uh but there was one batman movie in particular that was the perfect bridge between the batman of my youth and an actual film that had talent behind it and that's why my number 85 is batman begins Tell us, Mr. Wayne. What do you fear? How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend, Mr. Wayne. What's there to say? What's there to say about the plot? It's it's an origin story. Um, in in a time, a 2005 film where superhero origin stories were all the craze because of the box office success of 2002 Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which I think is a good movie, but 
not exceptional. I don't think 2002's, 2004's Spider-Man 2's that great. And I'm not discrediting these films. I think all these movies are fun. But when yeah. you've seen thousands of movies, these superhero movies start blending together. Mm-hmm. But with 2005's Batman Begins, I, as a kid, as a young kid, loved Batman. One of the first movies I apparently ever saw when I was three, like you were in 1985. When Reagan got reelected. Was Batman. And one of my earliest memories of going to a theater was the fact that our car broke down in a really bad neighborhood and a bunch of people helped push our car <laughs> to an auto shop. Uh-huh. And then we walked to go see Batman Returns. Huh. I then saw Batman Forever and that was passable. And then I unfortunately saw Batman and Robin. So, you know, my childhood was kind of punctuated by Batman. That was my only kind of in with superheroes. I didn't care about Superman. I didn't watch, I didn't care about X-Men. I didn't care about any of those. Mm -hmm. But Batman was like my dude. So, you know, however, seven or so years passed and Batman Begins was coming out. And at this point, I was already a huge fan of Nolan. Mm Mm-hmm. From Memento and Insomnia, two movies I'd, I'd seen already. I, I love both of them. We might be having discussions about those movies, one or two of those movies in the future. And so I was so excited for it. When I saw it, it was the perfect blend of the technical sides of the superhero. You know, the 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 mystery, the intrigue, the fantasy. Mm-hmm of a superhero done by a director and done by a crew who knew what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> and for me, I think this is the pinnacle of the genre. The superhero genre? The superhero genre. That was a bold statement. The Dark Knight, like I said, is, is, was disappointing for me. And the reason The Dark Knight's disappointing for me is it's so realistic. Mm. It's so grounded. It exists in a world that I can very much buy. Uh-huh. I mean, there's there's stretches of yeah, the imagination. Yeah, yeah, but I understand what you mean. Batman Begins isn't that. <laughs> no, it isn't. At all. Scarecrow has a somewhat grounded origin, but still that's ridiculous. But the thing that's most ridiculous in this movie is the fact that you have a villain with a very goofy, nonsensical weapon in the microwave. What is it, the microwave... That's going to dehydrate the, like the water supply? The water and... to cause, you know, the scarecrow's fear toxin. Ignoring the fact that, like, it would cause people to explode or basically the, their water in the human in their, being exactly. would shrink up. It would, they would become, like, what was that, Nightmare on Elm Street 4? Yeah. Where that woman gets kissed and, like, gets dehydrated? It just attacks the water supply. They're yeah, actually just the very specific about that in the, in the screenplay. Just the water supply. They also cut open pipelines. They're hugely pressurized, but no, it's fine. They're just like kind of get casually going. Yep. So it's ridiculous. You know, there there's this 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 clan that that teaches Batman that, that believes in mortality. That's also ridiculous. But the narrows are what really is ridiculous for me in this film. Uh-huh. This it was the one time in the entire Batman series. The, the Batman trilogy. Yeah. Where I saw something where I was like, this doesn't exist in real life. This is such a ridiculous 
Gotham-like space. A whole universe under under buildings. Yeah. No. Exactly. This. This. this and and just this decrepit space that felt like a section of a video game city. Mm. Now, very clearly defined what it is. And you had the metro rails running throughout the city. That Gotham itself felt like not so much an American city, but felt like this obligation of an American city that we can see and the cities that we see in a comic book. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of touched upon in the sense that, um, you know, Ra's al Ghul says that compares Gotham to like ancient Rome. You know what yeah. I mean? And Gotham is the world's great city. It's like, is it? I didn't think it was supposed to be that. Yeah. It was exa- supposed to be a shitty city. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think, I, I think for me, looking at this film from a technical standpoint, looking at it from a storytelling standpoint, looking at the score, looking at Nolan in control of his story, looking at, at Feister's uh, cinematography, I do think Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises are more proficient. However, they're cleaner. Mm. They're more sanitized. Gotham just looks like a mix between Chicago and New York City. The, the plans of both villains, even even though Bane's plan is a little more extreme, both just feel so blasé. Hmm. And I don't have much to say about the technical aspects yeah. of Batman Begins, but this is a movie that, that, that's just pivotal for me in the sense that I looked forward to it for so long. And it was a director I knew had control of his image a director who had a voice and he did it here. And, you know, I saw the Batman for the first time ever that existed in a world I could believe. Yeah. And still opened up so much in my mind of, of fantasy. And I, I lose that in Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. That's an interesting point in the sense that I think this movie connects really well, kind of like you mentioned to, um, the first, you know, Batman and then Batman Returns from the sense that... <laughs> we're going to ignore the Schumacher movies. Yeah, we're going to totally ignore them because they're <laughs> bullshit. Um, but um, there's no that such... That yacht Tommy Lee Jones bought isn't bullshit. <laughs> there's no such... You probably bought like 15 yachts oh, with sure. that money. Um, there is no such city in the world as the Gotham in the first two Batman, like Tim Burton Batman movies. In the same way that there's no such city in the world as um, Batman Begins. And they both kind of really dig in, though, into trying to like establish what the principles of this world are, um, how it operates, how it functions, who the power players are. Um, I think it's smart from Nolan's perspective, because he knew he was going to make three, right? I'm assuming he knew he was going to. I didn't look into the history, but I just like I can't I imagine he did a ba- he called the movie Batman Begins. Well, he, he knew he was going to do a sequel. He knew he was going to do Dark Knight, right? Um, if it succeeded, I think one of the things did. about the kind of genius things about about what Nolan did here is that he kind of got all of the a lot of that origin story stuff out of the way. Um, but did it in a new way too, which was which was good. Well, he did it kind of yeah. It was it was interesting. There were more stakes 
to Batman's origin than simply his parents got killed and then he had a lot of money so he decided to fight crime. Um, you know, there is like a higher ideal that he aspired to um, which I think because it's still an origin story the script kind of, you know, bungles through. Oh, exactly. Um, but is more interesting than other which I, origin, you know, or which I think any even, X-Men origin story think, or whatever. I think Nolan realized because that, that I think in a lot of ways where Dark Knight Rises fails is he's really trying to explain some of the pratfalls he made with the origin story in Batman Begins. Uh-huh. Because Dark Knight Rises feels so much like a sequel to Batman Begins. And it, I think a lot, a lot of criticism with Dark Knight Rises was they're expecting something to be a sequel to Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises is more of a sequel to Batman Begins than anything. Yeah. Um. I had something to say. Now I don't remember what it was. That um, I'm right and Batman Begins is better than Dark Knight? No, you're not right about that. I think uh, it's interesting to watch all of these movies again. Um, because you're really seeing the growth of Nolan as a director. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating. Um, because in Batman Begins, he hadn't yet completely learned about the difference between action move, action scenes and set pieces. So there is none of the really fantastic set pieces that you see in Dark oh, Knight. Oh, no, and I would, I would Bat- agree. In Dark Knight Rises in Batman Begins. It's just kind of a lot of fairly standard issue, you know. Car- I mean, you know, he takes the Batmobile or the Tumblr or whatever on buildings and stuff like that and you know he jumps it over some stuff and you know there's the train sequence and all this other stuff but none of those things have the grandeur or the depth of um you know the truck flipping sequence or the football stadium sequence and i think what's interesting too in terms of like that growth is especially with like the train sequences he rests so much on his actor's face and you can kind of still see an independent director a smaller director who you know needs to sell his action by the actor's response to it because he doesn't have the budget to really show what's happening. Mm. Um, when, of course, he did have that budget that Batman Begins, but he wasn't sure of himself enough yet. And he just had a different... Like, he had a different... Because he didn't have to focus on the Joker's origin, and because he didn't have to focus on Batman's origin anymore, he could kind of do the thing that I think you dislike about The Dark Knight, which is kind of return this movie to its roots, return the Batman character to a more real world setting where there are real physics and there are real you know um, Don't you just ramifications like how you know I mean? flippantly they kind of write off the narrows though in bet dark knight yeah well they're just gone yeah but i just like i don't know there's something insincere about that but i think there's, there's something that's kind of like betrays to me what the audience expected so much of the, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I maybe it's just personal issue, but just like, it just feels so much like a guy to me, dark Knight, and dark Knight rises. I like them both just, but they still feel like a guy who's really wealthy in the real world, dressing up like a bat with a ton of technology and tremendous martial arts skills, fighting dudes who just play characters, but are still very grounded. And that just doesn't feel it, it strips the fantasy of it. And I think yes. that's important. Mm-hmm. I, like, that's why, like, that's what frustrates me about those two movies is they're really well done and they're very entertaining on their own. But 
I couldn't imagine seeing those movies as a kid and being awestruck by them in the sense of them just playing into my imagination. They, they just, just inspiring the fantasy in me. I remember like when I was a little kid, I, I created like a super villain in my head called Mr. Brain just from watching the earlier Batman films. I just don't know if like Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises does that. It, it feels so sanitized in a way yeah. that Batman Begins doesn't. That Batman Begins feels like it still feeds into that fantasy. It has some of the... Um... I don't want to say narrative chaos of the first two movies. I think that's a good point. But the imaginative chaos of the first two movies where he's just kind of um, th- not throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall either because there's there's like massive control here. But yeah, he's playing... He's allowing the world to express itself in a lot of ways. There's, uh, there's a difference between The Dark Knight where the ramifications of all the actions are death. There's not like an in-between phase. You know what I mean? You're just dead. You're you're alive and then you're dead. Um, there's a weird in-between phase, though, in Batman Begins, in the sense that, you know, when when um, they're in the, in the Narrows, or they're across the bridge or whatever, um, and he lets off the, you know, he gets the thing to work and it's kind of letting off the gas through the streets... And people start going crazy and they start seeing, you know, when Batman's kind of gliding through the sky, they see that, like, hyper-distorted, red-eyed monster. um, Or the horses. Or the horses. Um, I think that's where the first two, the Tim Burton Batman movies exist. You know what I mean? No. It exists in this place where there's, um, the stakes aren't so much just you're alive and you're dead. The stakes are, you might go crazy. Or you might not know what's going to happen to you next. Or you may feel a, a, like an, a, an impending sense of doom. Um, but by by the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan has abandoned all of those other things. And it's just, it's just 100% real life. You're alive and you're dead. Um, so I can see why that would be... Like someone that grew up thinking of this stuff as a, as a fantasy would say like well i don't that's just too heavy that's just too much you know what i mean like this, yeah, is, yeah. this is supposed to be a comic book movie why are is everyone just why is everyone just dead why is the goal here to just kill everybody it's supposed to be about just you know gaining power not so much mass or, slaughter or even like in the idea of like let's look at the joker for example like like mass slaughter in the original batman's the goal but there's like there's that level of He's going to launch a, a, like a laughing toxin that's going to make people get those distorted smiles and laugh themselves to death. But there's there's like this, this separation from reality. To you're going to have a parade with a duck and there's going to be prints and you're going to be in a museum that only has like four pictures but also a restaurant in the middle of it and like all this crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. But there's, there's a separation from the real world and from what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of inspires like this this it inspires this this like thought process at least in, i think i think has this this wonder yeah 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 and i think that's lost in I, dark knight it's it's lost in the sense of like there's wonder in some of the set pieces and what you see like oh that's really cool but it's still very grounded and i 
don't yeah. like the grounding of I see it. What you, I know what you mean. And that's, um, I think it's really interesting to think about the kind of ebb and flow of like superhero movies and that we kind of, you know, we started at that one place where everything's like super fantastical and you have, you know, your Batman, be, you know, your, your Spider-Mans and your X-Mans and your Batman begins. I'm just talking about the, you know, the 2000s and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Um, and then you kind of, have, when Dark Knight happens, you kind of dip into this, like, or do we want this to be real? Or we do we not want this to be fantastical anymore? Do we want, like, a more grounded character and more, like, significant stakes? And then now we've popped back up into the, you know, where Infinity War is the biggest movie ever um, and is rooted in, in no reality yeah, and it's interesting, all. too, to look at Nolan's projects that are occurring in between each of these movies, like The Prestige um, and Inception. And Interstellar takes place right after, after yeah. Dark Knight Rises. But those movies are not grounded. Like, those movies have a lot of that kind of, like, fantasy tech, like fantasy elements to them, but they still have kind of this, like, slight real-world application. And that's interesting that he's doing those projects, but yeah. then, like, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises are so grounded. Well, and, I mean, it, it's interesting to draw a line from, like, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises to something like Inception, which we'll talk about later on my list, because I think he's using the cinematography and um, a lot of the production design to ground the two Batman movies. In, in a in a world that we seem like we understand, but in Inception, he's using emotion to ground it in the real world. Um, and if that movie works for you, I think it's because, like it does for me, I think it's because um, Leonardo DiCaprio's emotions are so profound and real that everything that's happening in the movie is. Is, is colored by them. It's like the veil that hangs over everything until the veil is pulled off at the end of the movie and you can like truly understand the depth of his sadness, anger, conflict, everything. Um, you know, it's really, it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating. And there's a, I think there's an attempt at doing something like that um, in... Batman Begins 2 in the sense that you're really dealing with like a story of loss. Oh, absolutely. Um, rather than you know, something like The Dark Knight where you're just dealing with a story of, of dead people. You're either going to be dead or you're not going to be dead. You just turn the key and figure it out. Or you're going to have half a face. Or you're going to have half a face. But then you're going to die. No. But, um, but no, so yeah, this, this movie was was a nice take for me in terms of getting that childhood wonder, but bringing it to, you know, me as a, as a young adult, I think I'm 19 or 18 when this comes, maybe still 18. No, mm. no, I'm 19 when this comes out and you know, like Batman, the earlier Batman's were some of my first introductions to, to loving movies and loving the wonder of movies. Sure. And it was, it was just, this this reaction I had to it actually went out into the grass afterwards and flipped for some reason because I was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> like the cartwheel of of a director I loved and, and had grown an appreciation for film, bringing it to, bringing it out of, you know, I, I think Tim Burns is an okay director, but bringing it out of 
kind of the muck in a sense and, and giving it a lot of merit you know into the yeah. point where now like they look at superhero movies and we're talking about them for best picture and whatnot but i think this is the movie that kind of like establishes the fact that you can take a really excellent director give him a vision give him some freedom and he's able to do something with it mm. and and that's why it's my number 85 all right we're back my number 88 is christopher nolan's 2008 film the dark knight the sequel to batman begins um i'm not familiar with this movie it's a little movie um didn't get a lot of buzz when it okay. came out um just kidding i want a twist or spoiler alert such fucks um yeah before i go into it i'll just make a quick quick structural note on my list so where we've moved for me to make my list i i organized it by kind of how i responded to it so the first group of movies that we just, or the group of movies we just talked about were really kind of movies that I like to think of like from the head, like from a cranium perspective. They're, they're thinking movies, they exist like in my brain. Um, Biting my tongue on one of the things you thought of with your brain, but okay. That's a different thing. But um, <laughs> now we're moving directly into movies of, that I like to think of as the body. Whereas the visceral experience of seeing this movie has kind of stuck with me. So a lot of Cronenberg coming up. I don't. Have, I have a Cronenberg. Yes, um, we're gonna go there. Um, so it's sometimes not the whole movie. Sometimes the movies are can be flawed, like this movie. I think. Um, but there's parts of this movie that I can't shake not just from my like from my psyche from my seeing but every time i go back to them i get the same i get the same visceral visceral reaction to those to those shots and to those sequences um or to those lines or to those you know those close-ups or to the that that note of score um yeah the dark knight has a couple of those sequences um for me so for those who don't know what the Dark Knight is about. Uh, Christian Bale's Batman squares off against Heath Ledger's Joker. That's the movie. <laughs> really? Aaron Eckhart's Harvey Dent slash Two-Face is in it for a little bit. You get some Maggie Gyllenhaal replacing Katie Holmes as Rachel Dawes. Um, Gary Oldman's still doing a really good job. As Gary Oldman's great. Gordon. And this, you give him an Oscar for this if you want. I don't care. Um... You know, Morgan Freeman is pointlessly in it as Lucius Fox. Um, Michael Caine. From, from a narrative standpoint, Lucius Fox is important. Um, but he makes the stuff. That I character guess it's is. To, well, the, the, we have to know where the stuff comes from. Well, there's the entire idea of like the police state sort mm. of thing going on. Um, there. And then you get Michael Caine doing subtly really good work as Alfred. Um, I, he's, I think he's kind of the underrated component of the movie. Oh, I think a lot of people love Michael Caine. Do they? Alfred. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't. I don't yeah, no. Michael Caine. Like Michael Caine considered like stuff. the. Yeah, I mean, I, I could fill in for the, for those parts where you just like say something. I'll be like, no, <laughs> people people fucking adore Michael Caine in these movies. Okay, good because I think he's I think he's 
He's great. And where There's, Bruce Wayne's not going to carry, where Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne is not allowed to carry a lot of emotional impact or have a lot of um, interiority. Um, Michael Caine is almost there acting as his conscience. Yeah. Kind of saying he's the, the thing. Jiminy Cricket of the series. Oh, that's, that's apt. I wish he did wear a monocle. It would make it way more interesting. It's British. <laughs> oh, yeah. All those British people wear monocles. Does, did Peter Sellers wear a monocle at all? I don't Shadow know. Uh, yeah. The next one. The next one they do. <laughs> um, Peter Sellers is, is dead. Long dead. I know. Bring him back. Digitize him. It'll be fine. Put him as he can be in the next Joker movie. He'd be like the Tarkin. Like the, uh... After the Joaquin Phoenix Joker and after the Jared Leto Joker, they can do the Peter Sellers hologram Joker. Yeah, it's like how they brought back... Um, I don't know shit about Star Wars and why am I forgetting that actor's name now for Tarkin. Oh, Peter Cushing? Yeah. They can yeah. bring back Peter Cushing. They can bring back Peter Sellers. And 1977 Princess Leia. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um... There's a lot of stuff with this movie that, like, the when you think about it, seems odd. Um, there's the whole Lao subplot. There's the movie's constant adherence to the idea of, like, mob bosses. And Eric, Ro- <laughs> Eric Roberts' constant presence in this movie, where he just shows up again and again and again and again and again. Um, the idea that the Joker, who is supposed to be this kind of harbinger of of chaos is even has anything to do with any of these mob bosses um, is just ridiculous. Um, Well, I mean, but I think, but from it's ridiculous from a a standpoint that Christopher Nolan seems to be setting up a a much larger movie, but he keeps falling back on these fairly stereotypical tropes. Well, I think the idea and the one thing I'll defend about this film, which I'm not the biggest fan of, I enjoy it. I don't think it's it's the groundbreaking thing. Um, is the fact that the Joker very much calls himself an agent of chaos, but it had very much has a detailed plan that has a lot of moving parts that right. need to work in a perfectly orchestrated way to happen. Well, and he even says like I'm not a I'm a doer, I'm not a thinker. It's like well, that's bullshit yeah. because this has all been well thought out and like ahead of time. Like even when he gets Harvey Dent, he's holding the gun to his head with Harvey Dent. He has his finger on the. Uh, the hammer. So mm-hmm. even if Harvey Dent pulled the trigger, nothing would happen. So yeah. like he needs every. He knows. He's he's a chess player. Yeah. Um, to that end, I think a lot of the because it's Nolan, and now we're looking back in time. Now, I mean, since he made The Dark Knight, he made Inception, and he made Dark Knight Rises, which has a bunch of masterful action set pieces in it, which rival the one in this one that I'm going to talk about. Um. And then the weird failure of Interstellar. The massive failure of Interstellar. Um, and then Dunkirk, then, which is competent. Dunkirk, which is... is, is Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's a lightning storm, folks. Yeah. Um, which is more than competent. It's, it's, it's technically perfect in a way, oh, but narratively yeah. like substandard, which they guess they kind of balance themselves out into a good movie. No, I, a I great agree. movie. Um, for me, though, this my love slash appreciation of this movie rests in two specific sequences, and one is the caravan sequence when they're bringing Harvey Dent to jail, um, and you know the Joker attacks him in in first in that car that says laughter is the best medicine, then he you know he is at an S, so it says slaughter is the best medicine. 
Um, and then with the 18 wheelers, um, you know, just kind of running into people and, you know, Batman comes in his, whatever that car is called, um, you know, Batmobile that turns into a motorcycle. The um, Tumbler, I believe it was. Is it the Tumbler? I think it's the Tumbler. What's it called in the uh, Lego Batman movie? I forget. Um, but it's something like that. I never saw a Lego Batman movie. Oh, you're missing, you're missing out. It's a good one. Um, Zach Galifianakis is in it. I don't know if that's the truth. He is. And he talks about the boat scene at the end. Okay. Um, I'll give it a watch sometime. And he's trying to take an airplane full of explosives, and the guy was like, Batman will stop you. He always stops you. No, he doesn't. What about that time with the two boats? This is better than the two boats. So there's a caravan sequence, um, which is an action movie masterpiece. Um, yeah, all the practical effects in it are. It's choreographed genius. perfectly. Um, you know, there's stuff in it that I actually haven't seen. One, well, maybe that I haven't seen, but that reminded me a lot of another movie that's higher up on my list, um, which is um, Patriot Games, where you know the Joker is hanging out of the car doing the shooting. Um, he's shooting at, you know, the, the police armored vehicle that's, that's holding Harvey Dent. Um, and he's not, it's not a stunt double. It is Heath Ledger and he's responding to it in character. And it's really kind of a wild, he's making really great facial expressions and he's like, he's like fully invested in this character. Um, and you know, it just moves from, you know, from moment to moment to moment, they're underground. They're, the way that's lit has this kind of orange. I mean, if you live in the New Haven area and you've driven through on the Merritt Turnpike under um, through the tunnel, it has this orange glow. If in any any tunnel is really. that under any it's tunnel? It's any any tunnel. There's a tunnel in Elko, Nevada, that same had the same orange glow. So you're gonna be a white fluorescent glow or an orange glow. It's there that orange glow. Go in a tunnel, people. But Don't be scared. Where in a lot of movies, I think they would fall back on the idea of making it, keeping it dark. Um, they keep it lit so you can see everything. It's not brightly lit, but it's lit enough so you can, you know, so you have a, a clear picture of what's actually happening here. You want to be able to see every moment that's going on. Well, yeah, that Lee Smith editing with a Wally Feister cinematography just works great for that sense of place, which we've always said is a big, important part of right. staging a sequence. Well, Wally Feister's really good at, at his cinematography, I don't think, is. Even though he won an Oscar for Inception, um, he's not doing anything. He's not rewriting like the cinematography playbook. Like he's not Roger Deakins, and he's not um, Emmanuel Zbecki, where he's constructing these grand shots, like using like all this space, and he's almost like making a painting on the screen. It's a it's a funk. It's a completely functional cinematography. But one that one that elevates the scene into um, something vaguely transcendent, which is, well, I think, what he did here. And this is what I argue too. A lot of people will criticize sometimes cinematography winning Oscars or cinematography being recognized for its craftsmanship because it doesn't create a painting on screen. I think a lot of people get a misconception that cinematography just needs to be that. And I think if the cinematography is used in such a way where it more clearly tells the narrative or more clearly frames the narrative. Um, I think that's better than, than creating a painting on screen. I mean, the painting on screen, I think a lot of people can do. Um, Deacons, uh, Uzbek could do it in such a way that it adds to the narrative. Yeah. 
but when you're able to do it while still you know framing a great shot but also helping your story that's also the sign of, of masterful cinematography well he works in conjunction with Nolan and like all the set designers and stuff like that where you know Gotham Gotham as a world is what it is but it's shot so pristinely it's so clean from like a a, a photographic perspective um that you can see everything. Like, the depth of this world is enhanced by this cinematography. I want, I want to get off track here a little bit I think on we're that barely part. off track anyway, so go ahead. Um, no, I think that this is a good discussion. Guys, this is a good discussion. <laughs> uh, the world in Dark Knight bothers me a bit. Um, there's a movie that's higher on my list that predates this one, because Batman Begins, what we talk about in a few weeks. Uh, that creates a bit of a fantastical world. It creates the Gotham of old, the Gotham of the comic books, the mm-hmm. Gotham of the Tim Burton vision, not the Joel Schumacher vision. Fucking what Did Joel Schumacher have a vision? <laughs> no. His vision was like, I'm throwing my literal shit at a wall. Everyone lives in neon. Yeah. More neon than Blade Runner. But... You know, so it doesn't have it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily gothic in 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 Batman uh, Begins like it is in Tim Burton's Vision, but you know, Gotham doesn't feel like Chicago necessarily in Batman Begins, and I really don't see a unique Vision in Dark Knight, and that's one of the problems I have with Dark Knight and then hmm. Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I don't know how you respond. Yeah, to I don't that. know if I I see a unique Vision from the standpoint that it is they're using the city. In a different way than Zodiac, um, but they're using the city to create an enclosure. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't necessarily. I should. I should correct myself. It's not necessarily Chicago. It's. It's. It's not. I think. I think actually one thing that is clever about Dark Knight is the fact that you know you have bits of Chicago, you have bits of New York, so it feels like an amalgamation of all these cities to create its own unique sort of like American metropolis. Yeah. Not the Superman metropolis. No. Uh, Definitely Looper. not the Superman Metropolis. <laughs> Zack Snyder's a genius. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't... Like, I think I think my biggest problem with Dark Knight, and I'm not even a big comic book guy, uh, but, but, you know, being, like, a lot into the video games and whatnot, uh, that would kind of come later, this, it doesn't have a comic feel to it, almost. Right, and I, and but I think I, that's a failing. I think that's good. And I think it's good in the sense that, so instead of using the city... Instead of using the city as a character, which I think a lot of people in comic book movies, or just any movie, tend to want to do. If you make a city, a movie in New York, you want to use New York as a character. You know, if you make a movie in, like, something like that's really high up on my list, like High Fidelity, like, the idea of, like, um, Chicago, to go back to Chicago, Chicago is kind of a, a, is kind of a character in this movie. You know, you get your elevated trains, you get... Um, you know, the surrounding environs of Chicago, but, like, while downtown is always kind of in the in the offing. You know what I mean? Mm. You can, it's, it's just kind of right there. Um, this movie is not so much they're creating a specific, a specific place with its own... Like, because it does have its own themes, it does have its own values. But it's not necessarily but its, its own character. It's the people's values, and it's the, the collective... The collective characterization of like the people contained within the city, um, thus the city itself becomes almost like 
um, you, like I mentioned before, like an enclosure, like a cage. But what's happened to Arkham? What's happened to the Narrows in Dark Knight? They're gone. Like, it doesn't... But I'm kind of okay are with they the same? Are they even like the same series of films? Like, but that doesn't, Batman but Begins even a sequel? For me, or is Dark Knight even a sequel to Batman Begins? It doesn't for, feel so separate. I know, but for me, that doesn't matter in the sense that I think Batman... I don't really love Batman Begins. I was kind of out for Batman Begins. Um, I really like Batman Begins. We'll talk about it later. Um, I think the interesting thing about this movie is that it kind of assumes that the whole city is Arkham Asylum. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, that, that is just, Joker's it's not just this place. It, yeah. It's the whole... It's, like, the whole thing. And thus, if this whole city is Arkham Asylum, then ostensibly the whole world is Arkham Asylum. You know what I mean? We're just all operating within an insane asylum at all times. We've just chosen to believe that we're not. We've made a choice, which is, I think, the 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 main point of this movie, is that we've made a choice to believe that we're going to do good rather than evil when, in reality, the ability slash want to do evil is within our grasp. We can go to it whenever we want to. It's a turn of a key. And then we're, we're as evil as the Joker. We're as evil as anybody else. So, we're so as evil as Eric Roberts. So, oh, which is, could be pretty bad. <laughs> um, so you're saying in, in the attempt to narratively... Create a back, a created narrative back in. Gonna edit this out. In an attempt to create a narrative backbone for the Dark Knight, they kind of abandoned some of the set design and and some of the body of Gotham that they created in Batman Begins. I don't necessarily, but you can also think of that, that from a whole. And we can we're gonna have this conversation in a couple of weeks. I think we'll you know continue it. I think you can think that about you can think that way about the whole movie. Yeah, I don't mean to derail it so much. It's just no, this no, no. Is my big problem with Dark Knight. No, let's talk about it for a while now, and we'll talk about it for a while later. Um, it, these are it's interesting that these movies are still like so well talked about when most of these comic book movies are generally written off within like a year of their I mean, existence. let's be honest. I mean, I, I, I mean, we're speaking to the fucking choir here, but this is the best trilogy of superhero yeah. films. Well, this is ever maybe. I, I mean, the Spider-Man trilogy kind of gets off the rails with the third one, but I think this is all three films, even though people hate dark Knight rises for some unknown reason. Well, they don't hate it. They just write it off. I think dark Knight rises is also still pretty solid. I think all three of these movies. I think they're work yeah. really well. Um. Yeah, I think. Well, I don't want to shit on comic book movies. I really don't because I've seen a lot of comic book movies, and I like comic book. But movies. they're doing like, what just, they're doing, right? Exactly. They're not aspiring to be anything more than they are. I think the interesting thing with the Dark Knight series is that Christopher Nolan, when he was handed over the keys to this franchise. Was like I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna make three real movies. Yeah, and I think I think um, Raimi I do think Raimi tried to do the same thing. I don't think Raimi was as skillful. He or tried to, but then he cast Tova Grace's Venom. No, well, no, he I think he kind of just get, did not give a shit about the third one. But. And then he real and then he killed Venom by hitting pipes together in a circle. Hey, yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think all of that stuff. You in another movie. In a, in a comic book movie made by another director who's just pushing buttons. And I, I just heard someone talking about this recently on a podcast about the Marvel movies where the Marvel movies function as well as they function because they have a lot of like the, um, the legwork done already. Like a lot of the effects are already done. It's just kind of like a plug and play thing. You're you know putting character design, but the 
the fundamentals of how this movie's going to look, how it's going to operate, um, are already done. Um, and we're going to pluck out Edward Norton and pop in Benedict Cumberbatch and <laughs> redo the story. Um, but in this, so, and this is something that I noticed too, when you give like a real filmmaker, and not to say that they're not, the Russo brothers are not real filmmakers, or the guy that did Thor Ragnarok. When you give an auteur, uh, somebody that's an, an auteur, auteur. that's that has a really specific vision. And we had this conversation about a similar scene, I think we've had this conversation, about um, David Lowry's Pete's Dragon, where he's got a truck chase, he's got a car chase through the Pacific Northwest, and he's got a folk ballad playing in the background. Um, it's a movie about a dragon and a kid that lives in the woods that's best friends with the dragon, and they're doing a truck chase that's going to end in a bridge fire, and the whole thing that's going on in the background, instead of like... Is... Don't you mean a... Dun, 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 dun. Sure, either one. Is an iron and wine style, like, acoustic guitar song. Similarly... The end of this caravan sequence ends in one of the most thrilling action moments oh, that I've ever easily, seen. Easily, where Batman takes a, a you know a cord that's on his on his motorcycle and wraps it around the wheels of this eighteen wheeler and wraps it around a bunch of telephone poles and attaches it to a building, and the eighteen wheeler keeps driving and then eventually flips over. And the whole thing is done without a soundtrack at all. It's just the sound of a helicopter falling and burning and then Batman wrapping this truck up and then the truck flipping over. And then even after that, when the Joker gets out of the truck um, and he's playing chicken with Batman, the only soundtrack is some kind of white noise, like really slowly building atonal like string work, which is probably and, done. And on the sound design too, when he's firing the machine gun, like that thunder, like it, that sound design is impeccable. Just the thunderousness of the, the the shots from the machine gun have the real bass to them. Yeah, this movie's known for its bass, just yeah, from oh, yeah. the Zimmer score. But um, like they're 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 impactful with, and they're just shots into the air. Yeah, I saw it probably like you did in a full theater opening night. Um, yeah, I, I saw this. I saw this at the first showing I could see. Yeah, I having had my opinions of Batman begins as I did. The theater was silent during this moment. And I myself was... My theater applauded. Did you? We were just kind of like... I didn't applaud, but I was very annoyed. I'm okay with applauding at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't don't clap during the middle of it. No, we were generally breathless. And I'm talking about myself specifically. I could not even really process what I had just seen. And it was just... I came just a bit. It was just just a truck flipping over. But But it was... It's, it's a practical so effect. Oh my god! It was just—it's not a CG. It's not like Zack Snyder would do with Batman versus Superman and just fucking paint CGI everywhere. This is a truck 
flipping. Flipping over. It's Christopher Nolan going, we need a truck flip. How are we going to do that, Christopher Nolan? CGI it? <laughs> He's like, no, no we're, we're going gonna... to flip a truck yeah, over. Flip a, flip a truck. Like a mini truck? No, we're no, going to flip we're a real flip truck, truck over. Come how, on. how do we do, like 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 sideways? No, no end no, over end. end. Come on, come on, guys. Um, this scene... found Guy Pierce and punched him. <laughs> this scene for me links up to the next... The other scene in this movie that kind of, um, you know, bites it bites at me from a visceral perspective is after, you know, you get Heath Ledger, Joker, in the holding cell. You know, he's having his conversations with Gordon. He's having his conversations with Batman. He's having his conversations with that other guy after Batman's kicked his ass. Um, and he has, you know, choreographed his escape from, you know, the bowels of, of uh, you know, the police station. Um, he's driving in the car. And the police car, and he's got his head out the window, and the camera is stuck to the car, and the car is just kind of jerking back and forth. And Heath Ledger's, you know, he's he's shaking his hair out, and he's just, you know. And I am almost happy for the Joker. Is it possible? I mean, it's a, it's a moment of such, like, freedom and, like, terror, but also... It's like release, but also terror. Like you know, something terrible is going to happen now. I um, think it and, works. And it's, I just think it's so arresting. It's like one of the most arresting action. You don't not get, an action. It's, not it's, even action, but like you don't get a lot of that type moments. of moments in action movies, where it's just it's just quiet and the villains the villains escaping, and you're kind of you're kind of glad because you know the movie's going to go on. You well, know what I mean? I think it works. Uh because of the fact that there's a satisfaction mm. you know, it, and a lot of times in, in action movies it's always unfulfilled in action movies um, you know the, the, the Hans Gruber plot of blowing up the tower and escaping mm. in the ambulance yeah, yeah. you know I know, where I know where you're going but it's, it's so you know every action movie has the unfulfilled plot the unfulfilled goal and that moment of him shaking out his hair works because, and you know, I would say maybe even like the first significantly high budget major action movie where the villains plot came perfectly together. Yeah, and this is the moment you would see, like obviously his plan continues, his plans has further steps, but you know, like you know, Rachel's gonna die, or has died by this point. Um, they're about you know, there. Yeah, they're on their way. He's. You know, dense about to turn, and it's just this culmination, and and everything's come together, plans come together, and it has succeeded. Yeah, and it has this, and it um, it's like this moment, this kind of calm before the storm, but it's a, like the opposite of like what you would expect, where like the you know the hero gets to take a breath or something like that, mm. like the villain, you know, gets to take a breath, and gets to kind of like sit in his in his you know the control that he has. He kind of gets to marinate it in a little bit. It's yeah, and kind I of think beautiful. I think it's interesting to compare this to a movie that had come out um, about nine months earlier, and, and something similar happens, and that is No Country for Old Men. Oh yeah, you know Anchan Chigar gets the money back. He gets to kill the protagonist. Uh, he kills the protagonist's wife, so he even fulfills a secondary goal. Um, 
Then he gets hit by a car, you know, as he's driving away after fulfilling the plot. So it's kind of like a slightly unfulfilled plot. It's still adding the chaos of the nature. When he's kind of just sitting there with the kids, gets the shirt off the kid. And it kind of fulfills the same sort of thing. It kind of gives that same sort of satisfaction. And even in more so that Chigar is kind of like this force of evil, force of nature. But it's still like that kind of weird satisfaction in that I mean, what are we it's a villain's about? plot just coming together and being fulfilled. I mean, you can go to the other movie from 2007 where Daniel Plainview kills, oh, yeah. you know, Paul Dano's character on the fucking bowling alley and, and it's says not, he's and finished. It's not that, and it's not that, like, this, this is Nolan just doing that over again. Cause not this, at all. This movie was fucking done, yeah. you know, by that point, you know, like. Well, maybe Dark, it wasn't. Who knows? No, well, Dark Knight was, it was in its editing process, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, like That's all I meant. Yeah, like, Nolan needed <laughs> A lot of time with that movie in post-production, I'm sure. I'm imagining Christopher Nolan in kind of like a Stanley Kubrick 2001 type thing where he's editing it like on a boat, like floating across the sea on the way to premiere this movie. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? I'm imagining... Why is he on a boat floating across the sea? Because that's how he could get an editing machine. Oh, okay. Like and work on it while he was traveling <laughs> from England to you know, a, Los Angeles. Just a yacht with Nicole Kidman on it. <laughs> Maybe before Nicole Kidman was born, so... Um, but yeah, it's it's that same kind of like conditional relief because he's the villain. So you can't on the surface feel happy for him, but you're just kind of But you you've are. always seen the villain lose. And it's nice yeah. to see like a villain in the one moment beat the superhero. Well I would go to and I would point and to we all have that side to us that wants that. Sure. I would point to another thing and you can you know Tell me if the Reddit community is, is all over this as well. I think one of the things that Christopher Nolan does, which is interesting, is he focuses a lot on, in the second half of the movie, he focuses, not a lot, but he focuses several shots on the Joker's forearms, which are yeah. which have no color on them. So it's just his face, and his obviously the color on his face is coming off. But his forearms never have, it, his forearms are just bare, and they're hairy, and he's got a glove on usually, but he's just, like, and he starts a lot of shots, like, with... With his with his forearms, I never, and that's another I never heard anything about that. That's another thing that happens in that scene where he's hanging out the car, and he's got his his he's got his hand on the thing, and so he's got his white face juxtaposed against his flesh, and it's a really I have always found that that kind of dichotomy really moving, um, in the sense that what the the flesh of his arm represents versus like the color of his face. How so? Um, the face is obviously a mask. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he, re- you know, it comes off when Batman's like beating the shit out of him, and he doesn't have much. He has left it off it. during the the shooting sequence when they're with the mayor, or he's got makeup, or he's got like more makeup on it, or something. He's got something weird on his face. Um, but then later, when he's in that warehouse with all the money, it's re- it's all reapplied. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's all the the makeup's white again. Um, It's almost like, to draw it back to Stephen King's revival, it's almost like the ant leg is like reaching out of his mouth. You know what I mean? That's the real him sort of like thing? The hu- like there is, he maintains, he's as scary as he is because you know he's a person. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not cloaked in this, in a kind of... Um, He's not he's not cloaked in like the traditional superhero like shit. He's wearing makeup and he's got scars on his face, but he's a he's a dude. And I think they tried to do the same thing with Bane in Dark Knight Rises, which they failed at. Um They brushed Bane off too quickly. Right. 
Um, but it's, it's and I think it makes it equally. I think it, what's what makes it that much more satisfying is that he's such a like he's a monster, but he's not a monster. He's a fairly normal sized person with hairy arms. You know what I mean? Who has this like cosmic nihilism about him that he's using to kind of undo like civilization as 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 it's presented here in, in you know Gotham City as a kind of stand-in for that. I'd agree. And this is maybe my biggest problem with this movie is the fact that it is not a comic book movie necessarily. You know, Batman Begins is a comic book film. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like through and through it, it rests on the creation of the superhero, the superhero inside of a larger than normal world with a semi larger than normal villain who never is a human with a super weapon, you know, all those various kind of cliches of the superhero movie done really exceptionally well, in my opinion. Um, bad dark Knight feels like a very human tale. Like mm. there's still very superhero notes to it. You know, some of the, the, the obviously the gadgets and, the way some of the plans work together and kind of like the machinations, especially of the instantaneous perfect sonar of the whole world. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But it's still a very human tale uh, Mm. that could be told in the same way of like, I could see a Michael Mann, you know, Mm. and like, there's a lot of heat in this movie. Sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Inspiration. I want to say like, it's a, it's not point by point. No, but it's, a, but, it's a, the the cleanness of the filmmaking is yeah. very is very you know, you know the high sequence definitely tries to, it's inspired by that. And there's moments that are inspired by it, um, and in so being, having followed just followed, there will be blood, and no country for old men. Somebody's honking at me because they're 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 not liking the fact what I'm going to say. It. Like, don't do this, Mario. You're gonna, you're gonna get the the bread at Death Squad against you. Four Chan is getting the <laughs> battlements ready, and but in so doing, and so being so human, it puts itself in that class, and when it is in that class, it pales vastly in comparison to me, mm. and that's what gets me about Dark Knight. I think it's a good movie, yeah. but it tries to be in the class of great cinema, and not just great comic book cinema. It's just it's supposed to be great cinema with comic book characters and ends up being just a good movie with comic book characters. And that's, I think, one of the reasons... I think I agree with you in the sense, too, that there's a lot of just comic book fat in this movie. You know what I mean? Like the whole Skyhook thing. Eric Roberts was trying to lose weight. <laughs> yeah. um, there's all you know all the mob stuff that we already mentioned. There's like that weird Skyhook scene, which is shot awesome, but ostensibly has no well, yeah, technically to be in the movie. Technically, this movie's fucking um, masterful. Even the stuff... It's funny, because this is a movie of two halves. So the beginning half of this movie is really kind of silly. And a lot of people talk about, like, oh, it's, you know, he's telling all these sto- these different stories about, like, how he got his scars. The stories about how he got his scars are stupid. And they're, yeah. they're purposely stupid. Like, they're meant to be for you to think that there's a reason for this, for ultimately you to find out that there's 100% no reason for it. Um, and it bums, it always bums me out every time Michael Caine, like, you know, tells that story about, like, how he was, you know, in 
you know, some war or other, and he was fighting someone in the Burmese jungle, and, you know, you know, some people just want to see the world burn. It's like, well, yeah, obviously, you know. Yeah, obviously like he the just wants to see the like, world burn. Come on. The silliness of, like, the six or six murders or whatever, you know, um, six murders, I believe it is. Because mm. Joker says he let six people die. Um, yeah, it's either five like, or six, doesn't matter. But it's, it's very, that is very comic booky. Like, when the the judge's car explodes and like the Joker cards fly everywhere. Like that's, but that's, I like that part more because like it leans more into its machinations on a comic book movie. I like that part too, but I think it, 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 it detracts from where the movie ends up going, which is a kind of real, um, I don't know. I kept going back to like Voltaire's idea that if like there was no God, we would have invented a God. Um, in the same way that I think Joker kind of occupies that space in this movie, where it almost seems like we are... In the second half of the movie, they almost make the case that the he believes that the people of Gotham almost kind of, like, conjured him out of nothing. Like, like to speak for their sub... Like, their subconscious. Their, yeah, their which is... Un, their unfulfilled will to, to murder and kill and pillage and stuff like that, they've collectively conjured Joker out of out of those feelings. Apparently we're conjuring Joker out of the environment around the Pivotal Film Studios. <laughs> the thunder is, is boiling a Heath Ledger in creation. Um, yeah, which I think, I also think is, it's, I think narratively this movie is sound in the sense of the one time where Joker takes his finger off the dial sort of thing or takes his finger off the, the trigger hammer, mm-hmm. as it were, uh, to speak to what he's actually doing with Dent, um, is when it gives kind of control over to the people, that's when he fails. You know, like every time before that, he is in complete control of the situation. You know, he he's doing the machinations of the system. He wins every time, but the second he doesn't do that is when he loses. Mm. And and I think narratively that that works. I think I think this movie works in every level. I think so too. It just it <laughs> some parts work better than other parts. Yeah, but I think it. I, and I think even so, like everything it's doing does work. It's just unfortunately it it does it so proficiently that it enters itself into a new class of film, and in doing so, it shows its inability to transcend itself. Wow, that's kind of profound. And amazing. I wonder what Christopher Nolan would think about that. Guys. I made a movie that I can't transcend with my own movie. <laughs> is, that, um, is that a gold star? Is that a gold star That comment? is a gold star, yeah. I'm going to bring a chart next week. Wait, I think I get something out of that. I have to look into my rewards cycle. Yeah, you get a high five. Oh, yeah. Um, the elephant in the room, Heath Ledger. Good, bad, indifferent. Oh, uh, great, great. He's great. Um, I wouldn't have given the Oscar. Uh, that's just me because because I love Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road oh, and that's a, Jesus Christ Mario I know but am I upset that he won um, is is it one of those things where it's like no like I personally would have not voted for him but it's one of those things where even if he had survived and won I I, I don't think he won because he died I don't think um, he did either. I, mean, I think he would have won. I think he still would have won if if he was still alive. He created. Uh, I mean, he created he was, a new archetype for yeah. like for villains in movies. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not the. It is. It is a deserving role. Um, like that. That interrogation sequence alone, just the way he's able to to sell it with with a human element while also still being this larger than life character. You know, and just. There, there's he he it, he settles into the role like we talked about with Peter Sellers. You know he he isn't Heath Ledger. Oh, yeah. He's 
you know, I think I think I think it's known by the fact that like the internet community was fucking pissed that this guy from Brokeback Mountain and Knight's Tale was going to play this iconic role, and then you know everyone now has to compare Joker <clears throat> to him. Well, we're not going to talk about Brokeback Mountain ever again. So let's, I just want to mention it like right, we'll mention it real quick right here because I think this is the last time we're going to talk about Heath Ledger, right? Maybe I don't know. Um, I'm just looking at because I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you kind of... You're talking about Jake Gyllenhaal a lot. He so. kind of telegraphed this role in Brokeback Mountain, I think, where he just kind of disappeared into the role of Ennis. And you kind of didn't... And you almost didn't have a language to describe what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like, it was so far beyond what people kind of thought maybe that role should have been or could have been or was. Yeah. Um, like, the depth of his sadness was so intense that I don't think people could really, could really make sense of it. I mean, it's it's one of the great losses of an actor. I mean, people, I mean, people I think now, I mean, they used to say River Phoenix. I'm not going to, I don't want to say that. Um, he is a profound, it's a profoundly deep loss in the fact that he was already at a level beyond most actors. Um, well, he was, but he and was, like, I don't like Brokeback Mountain at all. And for the fact that that movie rests on its establishing shots for way too fucking long. But and that got, is that is the, it really. The, the, one of the single best scores in the history of cinema. Are you fucking kidding me? Not like Gustavo San- Okay. Wait, you actually love that score? Yes. That score's garbage. It I hate 100% that score. 100% not garbage. I hate that score with Why? living passion. It is simplistic and boring and oh, That's why it's so good. Did you ever just listen to it? Yeah. I could play it. I could play most of it right now for you if you had a guitar. I don't have a guitar. I don't play music. I mean, maybe maybe I can't be the score guy. But it's a different conversation. Um. But no, he's he was transcendent in that. Like he is. And who wins in two thousand five for actor? I can't remember it off the top of my head. I don't know. But I I think you know ultimately, as much as I don't like Brokeback Mountain, that is quintessentially a great role and Heath Ledger was uh, it's, a, it's a loss to have, it, have him die when he died because he was already such a fantastic actor I think I think he should have won personally in 05 mm. for broke back over Philip Seymour Hoffman even in Capote um, we did have to look that up by the way we <laughs> forgot we, could, we really thought um, it was Forrest Whitaker but you know, I, I love Philip Seymour Philip Seymour Hoffman's a great actor I don't like Capote at all um, so maybe I was the right person to talk about that Dude, but I, that no, I agree. but Ledger is just transcendent in that. And like he, he lost himself in his roles in this period of time, and he lost himself famous, like infamously now in, in it's the hard, Joker role. It's hard to even watch A Night's Tale. Dark Knight. That's just, that's just the thing. You, it's hard to watch A Night's it's Tale. Hard, it's hard to watch 10 Things I Hate About You. I, I like 10 Things I Hate About I You. I do, too. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but it's hard to watch The Dark Knight now because you don't even really think of Heath Ledger. You just think of the Joker. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's not played by the Joker played by Heath Ledger. It's just he's just the Joker. You know what I mean? It's just him. That's just who he is. Um which is weird because he's a person. He isn't the Joker. Um but he's it's he, it's the role is so gripping and so perfectly realized that it's just kind of it's there's nothing you can do with it. Well, it's I think just it's just there. I think it's forever. interesting in October of 2018, you know, talking about the Joker and the fact that like a lot of bad actors have inhabited that role, and one actor who just did not give a shit and liked a paycheck, and Jack Nicholson, you know, and, and so we're we're in the precipice now, a year away, I believe, from an actual great actor Walking doing the Joker too. again. 
uh, with Todd Phillips. So who knows what's going to happen there? And Mark but, Maron. <laughs> and Robert De Niro. What's Mark Maron playing in that? So Robert De Niro is like a talk show host, and apparently Mark Maron is like the talk show host. What the like fuck is this movie person. about? It's apparently supposed to be like the last um, King of Comedy. Like Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy, where Robert De Niro is taking the the um, Jerry Lewis role. And Joaquin Phoenix plays Arthur Fleck, who is like a fledgling comedian, I think. So this, this isn't really a Joker movie? Like it's like maybe? a Joker origin story, but it kind of takes place in the 80s. This looks... I'm not, I'm not a fan of this. Is, you, you know, like that's going to be the, a time where, where a workman's actor who gets lost in his roles, you know, the second time we're going to see that, I think, since Ledger. And it's going to be interesting to kind of compare the two. I still think Ledger is going to be the superior one. Yeah, I think so too. I, I don't think there is much to say about Ledger. I think you know, all the... There, there, there's no surprise. You know, we're, we're, we're a podcast of surprises and our opinions. Uh, but I think we both agree that Ledger is just phenomenal in this. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's fantastic. It's, you know, he's overwhelmingly good in yeah. this part. So. I mean, he, he, he overwhelms everyone else. And I think everyone else is doing good. Yeah, I almost feel bad for Christian Bale when they're together. When Christian Bale has to growl through that stupid Batman mask. And, you know, Heath Ledger's just kind of free to act. Well, the thing, that, the thing that's bothersome, too, is you could kind of, you can almost tell through that mask and, and the way, like, Bale's doing, you know, we can, you can hang. Well, and he almost, wants to, but he can't because, like, the role demands he doesn't. And you almost wonder if a lot of the choices that Christian Bale made post-Batman are related to the idea that I just spent, like, the bulk of my years getting super famous behind a mask where I couldn't do anything but... Rah, 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 and people were just like, oh, and, what and is that? And now he's going to become the Penguin in... <laughs> In that in that Vice movie, so fucking Dick Cheney's the Penguin Man. The movie looks all right. No, it's gonna be good. It's Adam McKay. Um, Adam McKay became a, a person. Oh, he was a person. <laughs> fucking McKay. Yeah, we expected that. Good for him. Well, except for Big Short. Um, so that's where it, that's number eighty-eight. Yeah. My number 10 is shocking to me because I don't respond to this movie. I think it's fun. I think it's really entertaining. Um, it has a score, which I still listen to, but it's, it's very much a score I find typical. But everyone around me responds to it with Marvel. You included. Um, and it is a movie that has... Beyond all else, I think, single-handedly for the 2010s, set the tone of film, um, at least in tentpole films. Um, it is the 2010 Christopher Nolan film Inception. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Mr. Cobb has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. What kind of work placement? Not exactly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so happy that this is made by this. Oh, this is a great movie. Um, I am. Yeah, I I enjoy it. 
I don't love it. I think it's a lot of fun. But when a movie, I saw this movie with my mom. I went to go see it with my mom. She was excited for it. And like, she was like speechless afterwards. And my mom isn't speechless for movies. Um, And people I talk to who aren't movie people, when they talk, when I know I do like a film podcast, one of the films they mention like early on in that conversation is almost always Inception. Mm-hmm. Um, it is that film. And it, you look at movies that would come after it. Like Doctor Strange rips it off. Oh, yeah. Um, with that city bending scene. But like it sets the tone for what would become the blockbuster. It is the Jaws of our time. Mm. Um, you know, it is the Jurassic Park of the decade. It's interesting because people, I don't, and Dark Knight. I'm not Christopher sure. Nolan has had two yeah. decades of having the film of the, the the blockbuster of the decade. I'm not sure if people understand oh, that Nolan's per se. The, Christopher Nolan's the Steven Spielberg of our time, but better. But like, yeah. But I mean, like, people have, have people called Christopher Nolan that yet? No, they just call him Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, he's he's Spielberg. Because he hasn't made all the garbage that Steven Spielberg made when he wasn't making good movies. No, he just has to make more movies about time. About time manipulation. There's a lot more to say about how to manipulate time. <laughs> the great thing about like the Tenet trailer that we watched when Rise of Skywalker was on and my kids were watching, they're just like, did that car go backwards? And I was like, they're in it. They're in. They're in the Nolan bubble. <laughs> they didn't also ask, why does Robert Pattinson have a weird hair color? No, they didn't. No, um, they didn't. But no, this, it's, it, you know, blockbuster films have kind of lost that ability to be stunning um, for me a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Independence Day was Agreed. probably the last film where I was like blown away by the special effects. But this is, this was like the one where I was like, okay, I see that. And mm-hmm. just because it wasn't, because it went to a new level of special effects, it just presented the special effects you'd seen forever in a new light, you know, with right. its manipulation of time, with its and its its mixture of practical effects with the floating kind of room sequence, the, the spinning rotating room sequence, or the um, M. C. Escher style staircase fight. Uh, you know, it, you saw things that you knew were possible for CGI and, and visual effects, but that like weren't being done. Mm. Um, and you know it just was there and it felt different because it was you could sense its practicality and it was a Hans Zimmer score like doing Hans Zimmer stuff but it was it was also felt different well it just kicked ass yeah (laughs) that was that was the difference Welcome back. My number 66 is uh, Inception. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. Directed by Christopher Nolan. Um... Released in 2010, uh, it's got all of Christopher Nolan's team working on it. Uh, so Wally Pfister does the cinematography, music by Hans Zimmer, 
Lee Smith's editing. Uh, it won four Academy Awards for cinematography, sound editing, sound mixing, and obviously. Um, Has Lee Smith won an Oscar effects. yet? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I always feel like all of these people that do a lot of really quality work at some point win their Oscar. He he did. He he won it for Dunkirk. Okay, so they oh awesome. Yeah. Another Christmas that makes that makes that's fair. Yeah. Um, I I suppose this movie is this movie is this is not a movie I saw in theaters. It's not actually a, a movie I even remember seeing, like the specific moment that I saw. Inception. Um, I didn't see it in theaters because it was 2010 was the year my daughter was born. Lee Smith's editing Dark Phoenix, by the way. So actually, that movie might be okay. It will not be okay. He maybe can it's not gonna be salvage okay. something. It's not going to be okay. The last X-Men movie he did was First Class, and that was the last good X-Men movie. I don't think there's been one good X-Men movie, but that's... Passable X-Men movie. He's also doing 1917, which will be... Which will be good. I think. Which we're good. excited for. Yeah. Um, one take. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, my, my daughter, when this movie came out, I think my daughter was three months old. So, I wasn't going, this to, is, I wasn't going to movies this back is then. For all of our pivotal film listeners who care about the relationship between me and Tom, the, the last movie I saw in theaters before I met Tom. That's true. Which and is, I think why it was, this is why it's on your list, right? I think I mean, so. Just, Subconsciously, I think I, I knew that when I hired you. I was like, this the, guy just the saw The Schlubby, Inception. chubby, fat, husband at the time guy came in and was like, Are you seeing Inception? And I was like, I no, I want to see Inception. And then you told me all about it. And, and I, I just stared around at all the women you had hired at the bookstore and was like, <laughs> I need to leave. Um, I don't know if it's impo- if it's possible to kind of elaborate on the, what the story is for Inception. Um, only because it's so complicated. I mean, suffice it's, it to it, say... It's so complicated that a city folds in on itself. A city folds in on itself, which is kind of cool. But actually, it's one of like the least cool things, even though it looks good. The least cool things that kind of happens fine. in this movie. It looks, it, that is something about this. They the visual effects, improve, but they didn't improve it for Doctor Strange. Visual effects don't hold up for this. I think I they think. do. What, which ones? Which specifically? No, which, I, think, I think it still looks like there's like... You know, we talked earlier about um, the Uncanny Valley with Adventures of Tintin. Uh-huh. Uh, like, for some reason... That is like some weird uncanny valley for me where it's just it's so unnatural and weird looking that it feels like a video game. Well, there's a bunch of that stuff where I think it's supposed to. It looks like still looks like the Matrix. Kind of, I think the Matrix did something similar with like a city folding in itself. Maybe that was one of the video games around the Matrix. Uh-huh. Um, and it's always looked the same. Like Doctor Strange, it kind of looks like the same shot over and over well, again. Well, yeah, so yeah, Doctor Strange is weird because it just seems like they... Um... Doctor Strange doesn't seem active. It seems like they just kind of layered a bunch of things on top of each other. It yeah. was like visual effects. And even though it looks real to a point, it doesn't look it doesn't look good. It doesn't look exciting. And that's why and I think some of the other visual effects in this movie are, are no, like I think the all the other practical effects I think all the other visual are effects way in this more movie exciting than like even the CGI effects such as the crumbling city are fucking amazing still. Oh, it's great, yeah, yeah. But, like, the, the folding city, there's something about that There's that something about a, a folding a city in half that's just kind of like, all right, yeah. that's, okay. Um, Hollywood, stop folding cities in yeah. half. Yeah, I don't think they ever will, because I think they think that's a mark of something. You know what they should do? They should uh, fold it the other way. Yeah, fold it in half and then walk over the edge. Yeah. That'd be good. Like a flat earth. Where Shell Silverstein is. Um, nice. Um, so... In this movie, it's not the future per se. It's not modern day per se. It's not the it's, past. It's, a, it's like a it's like a weird. Universe. It's like yeah. a current. It's like one of those where they've developed the ability to parallel kind of, universe. They've developed the uh, ability to um, inst- um, instigate a kind of dream sequence at at will 
Are we are we willing at some point after we talk about the film itself to talk about the the psycho the philosophy of the film? Sure, because I, I want to deep dive into I think it's this. Part of it, I think the philosophy of it is. Has this like movie fucking freaked me out as a kid? Like not as a kid, as a twenty. Well, and so that's the thing. So three year old. Um, they uh, we'll get into that. All right, let me just get through the thing. So they developed. Uh, they they can get into people's dreams. They can manipulate people's dreams. You can have, um, you know, in uh. uh you can just kind of fall asleep dreaming type of thing um, using these box and chemicals and all this other stuff. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a it's commodified thing. I think this movie's so bred into the cultural synapses now that the word inception is, is it's just is people known, know knowing right. what it is. It's, um, you know, so Leonardo DiCaprio um, as Dom Cobb and his team, you know, featuring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ellen Page and Tom Hardy and um, Dilip Rao. Um, they are tasked by Ken Watanabe's character Saito to go into the mind of uh, Robert Fisher, who is the son of a like a media mogul, to uh, incept him, meaning implant the idea in his head to break up his father's this is, company. And this is what one of the last two major films of Pete Postlewaite. Yes, one of. I think that's an actor who's going to be forgotten, which makes me sad because he was fucking fantastic in. Almost any, he was one of those actors we talked about. Every time you saw him, you're just like, you're oh, like this, this is going to be good. good. Yeah, like I don't like the town, but I saw Pete Postlewaite, and I was like, Pete Postlewaite's a good actor. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so they they develop a scheme in which they're going to incept Robert Fisher with this idea. Uh, this involves three layers of dreaming. So there's the regular state. There's the first dream state. There's a second, which is the first dream state, which ends up being a rainy day in a city um, where they discover that Robert Fisher has um, developed defenses against um, extraction. Like, so people reading his mind or going into his mind using this dream technology and extracting ideas and things. Um, they also there confront Dom's or Cobb. I'll just refer to him as Cobb's. Um, some of his problems he's having in his subconscious, which we'll go into later. Um, they then go down another level, which takes place in a kind of hotel room or a hotel scenario. From there, they go down another level, which takes place in a snowy James Bond-esque fortress Which scenario. takes place in Set Piece the movie. <laughs> set Piece the movie. From there, ultimately, spoiler alert, they go down another level into <sighs> Cobb's subconscious, um, where kind of all hell breaks loose and the movie ends and we all have lots of questions. Um, it's an action movie. It's my favorite kind of action movie in the sense that there's no stakes. Um, they develop yeah. some stakes later in the movie, but if you die in the dream, all the action takes place in the dream world. If you, and, and it's from a kind of white blood cell type as it's described, um, a person's consciousness trying to fight off the infiltrator of that consciousness which makes a lot of sense and is awesome, and it means that like nobody really dies. So like the gunfighting and stuff like that can be is all in your head. It's not real. Everyone um, dying is like I, I assume Nicolette would have no problem with this movie because it's yeah. I mean, all the people dying in the in the movie, all the people dying are, are just parts of a person. If, if anyone doesn't imagination. like this, if anyone doesn't like action movies at all, this is still an action movie. You know what I mean? It's still a Christopher Nolan movie. It's yeah. got action. It's got lots of big guns. Um, Action scenes, car chases, blah, blah, blah. How many people die in this movie? Like two, maybe? Just Pete Postlewaite. 
I guess you could say in real seen life, Mary, just him. You've seen Marion Cotillard's character's death. Cotillard dies, yeah. yeah. But she's, I mean, that's a different That's a, that's a, that's different a flashback, thing too. but. Um, so it has that going for itself um, in terms of like my being able to enjoy it. The reason this movie is on my list is kind of when you just kind of said, like, talking about the philosophy of it, the philosophy freaked you out. I kind of knew what this movie was about because I saw it last, maybe I saw it like two years after it came out. Just really? kind of getting around to it. Did I, you see this after Dark Knight Rises? No, yeah. Uh, no, well, I didn't. No, I definitely saw it before Dark Knight Rises because I didn't see Dark Knight Rises in the theaters either. Um, I was just. When I. Was Tom Hardy a thing yet? When you saw it? No, it was Dark Knight Rises. I remember Dark Knight Rises being his first kind of like Tom Hardy. Well, this was this What's was he the, doing like, like one of the reasons I really love this movie is because of Tom Hardy, um, because he's doing his actual voice. Yeah, and like, fucking, we talk about charisma, but like, that man is, that man could could enter the twenty twenty election. And I'd be like, Tom Hardy, you're not American. You can't do this. this He'd be is, like, I'm going to run for president. And we're like, you know, what, Tom Hardy. I mean, okay, this is one of the things. This is a movie where me and you maybe should have, <laughs> we should have created an outline for how we're going to talk about this, because. This is a full – this movie is just all charisma. I mean, all of these no. actors and actresses are so charismatic. Like, even Ellen, Ellen – uh, I was going to say, maybe Ellen Page. I, see, I disagree. I think Ellen Page, when she shows up in this movie, is like a fucking spark. Yeah, but comparing, like, her, just, comparing her, this, the, the charisma she brings to this compared to um, David Slade's Hard Candy – is night and day. She's so charismatic and hard candy that it's like... Of, it's a different kind of charismatic, though. She's uh, a straight man in this I movie, find, and I think she does it extremely well. She is your baseline kind of like introduction to this wild world. But see, here's the thing. I actually sing, I see a kind of... Um, yeah, she's a gateway into the world, but she's also kind of a model for how I saw this movie in the sense that every new revelation or every new exposition dump that Christopher Nolan decided to give us because this movie is just one it's a two hour long exposition dump which is great it's a really I mean if you if we want to talk about subversive I guess in a way this is a movie that doesn't it's not subversive in the sense that it does it does anything subversive it does things subversive in the sense that pretend it doesn't ever pretend to be something it's not yeah this movie's so authentic right which is crazy I mean, so I think, I think spoilers, real, spoilers, both of us fucking adored this movie. Right? I love this movie. I mean, I, I'm not a big, I like Christopher Nolan movies overall. I hate his follow-up after this. I think Interstellar's, well, I like Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I hate Interstellar, because I think Interstellar is him trying to capture lightning in a bottle twice. Mm-hmm. This movie does 100% This is a kind of everything. perfect, this is a kind of perfect Christopher Nolan movie in the sense that say, it's psychologically complicated and the action is really good. I would say this is, uh, hot take. The best summer blockbuster movie ever made, hmm. and it made a lot. I mean, it made a lot of money. Uh, so, uh, Jurassic Park was also released in summer. Um, but uh, here's the thing: the, the best w- high concept summer blockbuster, right? Movie. And we can talk about that too, because one of the things I learned while reviewing, while looking at reviews of this movie, was that um, a lot of people reviewing it wanted to think this of was it. a this was a picture nominee, right? Yeah, okay. they wanted to think of it as something very specific. Um, so either the summer blockbuster movie or an action movie or uh, like a psychological drama or whatever. Um, and in reality, it's kind of all of those things. It's kind of everything you want like a, a movie to be in the sense that it's really exciting, but it also asks you to do a lot of, of work thinking. And I think that's where the Ellen Page 
like the sense of wonder comes in, and it's not in that kind of awestruck, just standing back and looking. It's when she first goes into the dreaming with Cobb, and everything's kind of exploding around her, and then she comes out, and then she goes back in, and she starts designing. And it's that... Aha! Uh-huh. It's she's having an active. And this is just how Christopher Nolan's just a genius filmmaker. She's he's allowing a character in that movie to have an active aha moment, as you get to see her put this world together in the same way that you, through the whole movie, are going to be sitting there and putting this world together for yourself and figuring out how these things relate to it, but also how you relate to it. Yeah. Does any of does do any of the levels of dreaming in this movie? speak to an aspect of how you view the world. And I think that's the really interesting thing about this movie is that it's not... So like something like The Matrix, um, the world was constructed for us or for the characters in The Matrix and they just live in it. This movie is great because it contends that you are actively constructing your own version of reality. And this and this can kind of links to Under the Silver Lake as well. Like, and what does that look like? What does your reality look like? What are and what are the what are the what are the problems that your subconscious, your innate understanding of the world, which you might not even understand, how does that how is that reflected in the world around you or in the world you've created for yourself? And this isn't just something that you can see. This isn't just something you could, you would see in like your subconscious or in your dreams or something like that, but it's in like the choices you make and in your active everyday life, which is where I think the kind of ambiguity of the ending comes into play in the sense that even if he is choosing, because, you know, so the, he, he hits, he spins the top and he goes to see his kids finally. And then the movie kind of pans away from the kid. The camera pans away from his kids and settles on the top. And, and then the good, top it wobbles. Good, it has a good Sopranos style ending. Yeah. And then the top wobbles. And I guess Christopher Nolan did that on purpose. He said he does not, did it on purpose because he wanted there to be a little ambiguity in the sense of, is Cobb actually still dreaming? There is he still dreaming? But I guess for me, in the end, it doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. Because he is... Cons- the Which world- is the point. Like- right, Exactly. It's not to, something to figure out, and this is another thing I want to go into if we have if we decide to make this another two and a half hour podcast. Is I, think, that we've I se- think we're down that rabbit hole. We my have friend. sensed in our culture we have decided that we want Easter eggs. We want to be able to round completely how this movie, the world that this movie is constructed, where it begins and where it ends. What's the definitive ending of Inception? What's the definitive ending of Us? What's the definitive ending of any of these movies that you have questions about? You know what I mean? Is the end of Snow White, you know, pulling back and just showing a tiny speck spinning in an infinite abyss of, like, the universe? Calm down, Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, and I think that's, that's, that's why Christopher Nolan's so good, because he puts these, this huge, big, universal question and he just wraps it up in an ex- expertly calibrated it, action movie. So you think it's wrapped up? Interesting. Oh, I don't think it's wrapped up. I think he just he took this question and he put an action movie around it. See, what I love about this movie, and it is a fucking shame. Like, for as much as Christopher Nolan gets a lot of shit for his screenwriting and his storytelling, like he, he's he's universally he's, he's made universally, some mistakes. Yeah, he's universally considered probably one of the best modern directors, which I think is fair. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would agree. Memento. Is a great movie. Like, we're going to talk about Christopher Nolan 
couple, I think a couple more times in this podcast. We're going to talk about Christopher Nolan in two weeks. I didn't even know that. But yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I think he is a terrific director. His, his screenwriting has some mistakes, especially like in his Batman trilogy. There are some noticeable flaws. Um, but uh, he got nominated for this screenplay and ended up losing to David Seidler for King's Speech. Yeah. I want to talk. There's, there's, Inceptions, I think, is a long conversation. Um, but this story, like world building. When you so this movie is in the same vein as Matrix in terms of like asking certain questions and you talk about like wrapping up a story. What's nice about this is it feels like an insertion, like it is in itself a deception. It is a entering into continuous action, a slice of that continuous action for one narrative, and then that continuous action will continue. Mm -hmm. Like there is no, there is a beginning, but that beginning isn't necessarily the beginning. It is just a beginning that we can jump in on. Mm And it is an ending, but it isn't. Isn't the ending is an ending that will continue on, mm-hmm. and that is perfect fucking world building. To an extent, I would also say something like um, Paul Verhoeven's like RoboCop does a similar thing, in the sense of you know you jump in on the story of like RoboCop's creation and like this new story, but it feels like a world that exists. Well, that's so that's the, this is yeah one of the absolute. Best examples of world building I've ever seen. The movie takes for granted that this world already exists, and, and that we don't need to have like the technology explained to us. It's just the technology, and it is so utterly genuine in that explanation that it is you accept it, mm-hmm. and it is earnest and <laughs> competently directed. I also say earnest a lot. It's earnestly uh, competently, competently directed, directed. Um, beyond competently directed, uh, but it's so honest and sincere in that that you buy it and then it it so pays attention to its own rules without leaning into telling you that it's just it's well it is striking i hate to use the word like masterpiece quite often but like this is a movie that i watched and like so i watched this with my mom i went to the cinemas with my mom for this Uh movie after i was finished i was like that was a pretty good movie that was my reaction and my mom was like are you fucking kidding me she hit you no, she's like that. She's like that was one of the best films I've ever seen. Like she was blown away, and it's a movie with age and years, like almost what ten years removed now from this film. I'm realizing is like truly a masterstroke. Well, so here's and the, the, the two things that I always find master masterful about it, if we want to call it a masterpiece, is how. I mean, I think uh, let's 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 let's, screen, let's set let's set like the standards. I think in terms of overall, like. It has its flaws, but I think we could call it a master. Like his, it yeah. is his film. It is his. It's the best it's overall. It's the perfect film. distillation. I have of a higher what film on my Nolan list, but it is his. Does. It is a distillation of yeah. yeah. Um, the two things. It is his uh, high quality vodka. The two, the two things I think um, that make it that I always find really every time I watch it. I've seen it a bunch of times since I first saw it. Um, every time I watch it, the things that always jump out to me is that he's turned literally base exposition on how this world works into part of of the dramatic storytelling here. So even when Cobb is telling, um, I don't, uh, Arid, Arid, whatever, Ellen Page's, <laughs> Ariadne's, um, yeah, Ellen Page's characters, he's telling her how this world works. He's not just telling her how the world works. 
he's setting up the base drama for this movie. The other thing is and that... And not only that, but he's... What is great about this movie is he tells it through his bias. Everything about this film is great because every character isn't the sto- isn't Christopher Nolan. I mean, they are Christopher Nolan, but they are told... Like, Christopher Nolan knew to tell it through the character's bias. Yes, and that's... Which is so fucking clever. And, not and just the fact the, that he does storytelling within dialogue. And not the characters... And not by telling you, but by how they tell you. And you can say... Bias is another... Bias works for a couple of characters. So, like, in terms of how Eames responds to... Thomas Hardy responds to, like, what they're doing. How Arthur responds to what they're doing. But the I mean, depth I say, of... I would say Arthur is kind of... No, not but the Arthur, most well no, but he is. shaped character. He's a well shaped character. I guess he's not the well shaped character in the sense that you don't get a backstory, but you do get he he's feels a like, character. He feels like an action hero. No, but he's. A, I think, in terms of. If you break down all these characters into what they are, um, Arthur is a functionalist. He's fun, Yeah, he's functional. And where Eames is a kind of. Pragmatist. He's a pragmatist, but he's really good at it. Where um, Yusuf, by Dilip Rao, is. Where, where the fuck is he gone? He's know. great in this movie, but he's an ex- he's like an idealist. You know what I mean? He he's plays, good. He's really good. He and plays within this thing, and where even like, um, I'm sad Ken that he's Wa- the only person who is not like like done. a person still. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ken Watanabe is almost taking. He's doing the thing that you would think that Ellen Page's character was supposed to be doing, but like is awed by it. Ken Watanabe just like Saito just wants to be along for the ride. He's just impressed by the technology. He's impressed by. The idea, he's impressed by everything. And he has he, this initial goal, but eventually he's kind of like so he's wrapped just like, up in it. Fuck, I want to see it. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, the only way to prove it is to see it. But he, you also get the impression that he just wants to see it. He's just so amazed by this that he's, he's just got to look. It all, and also, it feels so sincere that some, like, Ken Watanabe's so sincere in that role that at some point it feels like Ken Watanabe himself was amazed by yeah. this movie. Well, and to the point, it feels like the actor himself. Just stop acting. Yes, and to that point, to that exact point, Mario, Leonardo DiCaprio, and we're going to talk a lot about Leonardo DiCaprio in this podcast. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, well, last week, I mean, two weeks in a row. And we're going to do DiCaprio. We're going to do another one in like 10 weeks, um, if not sooner. I mean, if you don't like Leonardo DiCaprio, you can just turn off this podcast, and you can just stop watching movies. I just really, I mean, I don't really like a lot. I don't like, like a lot of actors in the sense that I don't go see a lot of movies because certain actors right now. I mostly don't care. I mean, DiCaprio as a person kind of creeps me out with his, like, hard 27 or whatever rule. But... <laughs> um, Have you ever seen that you Reddit? Like... You ever seen that Reddit post? No. There's a uh, data... You, ever, you know the subreddit Data is Beautiful? No. There is a Data is Beautiful which just shows you, like, data in, in graph form. And no. apparently he always... Breaks up with women when they reach a certain age. That's gross. All right, let's ignore that so we can have a con- <laughs> an extra conversation. Here. Um, Mario Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio as Dom Cobb plays the character that used to be, and this is why this script is so good because you know him and Ken Watanabe have this thing like, oh, let's you know we want to be old men together. You know what I mean? Let's get out of here so we can be old men and you know dream together as old men. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a character who used to be like Saito, who was just awed by what could, what the possibilities of this technology were, literally carried this technology, pushed this technology, the boundaries of this technology as far as it can possibly go, and every second of every day is reaping the effects of having done that, of having seen all there is to see, not just like 
in the world, but within himself. I think people, like, the thing that's so subtly told, I mean, it's very obviously told, but then subtly shown, is that Cobb is probably 110, 120 years old. No, he's point. a regular years old, but no, he's, he he's 50 no, years old. No, he's regular dream. years old, but, like, mentally, emotionally, he is a hundred years old well, at this he's point. he's just so, I mean, and he's so... And he's so fucking worn down. He's so broken. He's yeah. so worn down. He is just, he is just through. And I, I was actually, and like, slowly we'll get into the philosophy of this. Like, it's kind of something I want to say for the philosophy discussion, but somebody asked me on a date recently. Right, ladies, I'm dating now, so you're windows closing. Um, like, if you could extend your life, like, to be twice as old, would you do that? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. And, like, this expertly shows that in a way. Like, in the Better than the Highlander? I'm sorry, Christopher Lambert could not carry the gravitas <laughs> I needed. Um, but, like, he's so beat down by just experience and the world. And he's trying to, like, he's always putting on this mask. And DiCaprio's so fucking good at playing characters who are just, like, throwing up a mask. Right. Um, that, like, no matter, even that ending, even the ending, even if he sees his kids again or whatnot after however many years it is for him, like, this man's still fucked. Yeah, and you get the sense. As I want to say, I want to save, I want to save the philosophy discussion for the end of this like discussion. Yeah. I mean, I think this podcast is going to be a long one, man. Now nah, we're only at an hour and forty right now. Oh, jeez, I have two what? tiny cuts to make. Um, I mean, I guess we can wrap up like a kind of. I don't. No, I, I think we need to still talk about the film. <laughs> There's yeah, so I mean, much to talk about the film itself and then the philosophy. But that's the, the thing. Film. So it's, it's a hard film to talk about, to describe, because you have the different lay- like the different levels of plot. Ex- the, this movie I mean, exists on different levels of plot, and it's hard to talk about them like all in one like a linear things, thing. Let's find the things we really like. I, what makes this pivotal for you? I mean, we could call it like, this is a movie that I think... Might we're gonna at the end of the year do a podcast of yeah. our top this twenty film, films of the, de- you, of the last two decades? This, this might this probably will show up on my it's list. It's on my list. This film is pivotal for the same reason that you have seen Under the Silver Lake three times, because there is a depth. All legally, I did not illegally stream it. There's a depth to this movie that doesn't exist in a lot of other movies. And there, uh, uh, this is a, a <laughs> not the same reason I watched Under the Silver Lake three. No, times. but like so how. Uh, where Sam's character under the Silver Lake is hunting for something. I when I watch this movie, I because of the oh, it, so you're you're saying you're like Sam in Under the Silver Lake. I, well, I am. That's and one of the things that disappoints me about Under the Silver Lake is that I do perceive myself as someone who is like Sam, who is constantly doing that stuff, and I perceived Inception as knowing something that I didn't know, and to get into it. Um, meant going down a rabbit hole that I wasn't able to always go... And this might make me a stupid person or whatever. Um, or, you know, whatever. Whatever re- listeners want to think, well, that guy's pathetic. Um, when I turn this movie on, I start at one place, and by the end of the movie, I'm totally... I'm somewhere else um, in terms of dealing with, with, with film, with the nature of, of how people, like, make movies, and, like, why don't more people take these kinds of chances and make... I'm just making this. You either get it or you don't. I don't fucking care. Um, but also, like, psychologically within myself. Like, how would I... Uh, not just how would I... If I had the ability to go down that deep into my subconscious, what would I do with it? But, 
I feel like I have been down there. I feel like I've on a number of occasions have Is it also a snowy like Swiss landscape? No, it's it's uh how dilapidated houses floating on uh, like a shallow pool. Um sitting amongst squared off buildings that I didn't care enough to design like with any kind of detail. Um but it doesn't make me ask questions about the movie. I'm not hunting for Easter eggs within the movie. By the end of the movie, I'm asking questions about like myself and my relationship to my own reality. As someone who hunts for shit, as someone who is looking for meaning in things that perhaps I shouldn't be looking for meaning in, like doing this, <laughs> like this podcast for one. Um, yeah, if you guys haven't realized this, this podcast is just me and Tom working out our own psychological, psychiatric I, issues. I actively think of it, this podcast as that. Um, amongst other so things. For all the like new Hellboy listeners who joined us last week for some goddamn reason, uh, welcome. <laughs> We're sorry for what we said about Hellboy. Now you have to listen to what we say about Inception because you're in my subconscious now. Whether you like it or not, you're in it. Um, and I fucking... I mean, the first time I saw it, I, I loved it. And even this time, when I watched it most recently, I, had, I paused it because I had to go pick up my kids. Um... I got up and I felt like I felt like a rush. Like yes, I'm 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 in it. Like I'm in this I'm in this world. I'm going to dig and we're all going to dig together me and Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio and not so much Joseph Gordon-Levitt cuz he seems like he has a real grasp of it. Yeah, he's got to figure it out. But like so when That's why I say he's kind of like the action hero. When they movie. go to when they go level to level and they're on that third level and um Cillian Murphy wakes up and he you know, he opens that door that Cillian Murphy yeah, isn't that what it is? Isn't it, I don't know. Is it Cillian Murphy or is it Killian Murphy? I think it's Cillian Murphy. I've always said Killian Murphy. Like we could both be wrong. It could be Chillian Mr. Murphy. Murphy, if you're listening to this podcast. Sir, <laughs> Sir Mr. Murphy. Um, Tell us who's right. When he opens that safe, when all of the, you know, they've planned out all of these, you know, there's an intellectualism inherent to the characters in the movie also. So as these things crop up, they're using them to design the next layer, level of the, of the dreamscape. Um, so he punches in this code, which is six random numbers that he just made up, you know, at the point of a gun. Um, he punches in that code and he opens that safe and there's like, you know, the will that he expected to be there next to his father's bed. And there's also like the pinwheel that has been in that picture that he's been carrying around um, the whole thing. Um, the depth of emotion there is not so much sadness and it's not so much joy and it's not so much relief. It's a complicated... What's shown on the screen is a real complicated combination of all of those things, which would be, it's kind of like an unknowable thing that you might only experience in a dream that you might not realize was there. Because all of your biases and your prejudices that are um, closer to the surface of, of how you navigate the world have been stripped away, and now you're down to your bare subconscious. Which I find so you're, it's, you're confronting the thing you truly want more than anything. Which I, and the thing I find interesting, and like, let's talk about the philosophy of this film, and then we'll wrap up with the film itself. Um, the thing I find interesting is, like, especially now in this rewatch, is Killian Murphy, Cillian Murphy, C. Murphy. Cassillian. Yeah. Based his character off the sons of, what did he imagine to be the sons of, like, Rupert Murdoch? Mm. And, like, it, it that, kind of makes sense like on a rewatch now um in the sense of like you fucking strip everything down to its base level and you get this you get like this uh, guttural i guess kind it's of like, like a visceral it's like a visceral kind of it's un, visceral vi- undefined it's very, emotion it's violent but like not violent against person it's just a 
a, a nature of violence. Mm. It is Hobbesian. Two weeks in a row we talk about Hobbes. <laughs> Very Hobbesian in its nature. It is. It's, 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 oh, this movie is a fucking... It's a work of art, you know? It's just it's crazy in the sense of... It, it does such good work in using people who... You know, like Cobb's team versus um, Murphy's personality and even Sato are, are such different backgrounds, but when everything's reduced, they come down to the same level. And you kind of like strip away those biases and you strip away everything until everything's so base. Mm-hmm. And you get into maybe like my one problem with this film. Um and I guess this goes into the philosophy of it and everything. Um, so the, the philosophy of this film, and we're going weird, this podcast about consciousness and whatnot. This, uh, this says what? That consciousness is not a physical thing, right? In terms of what? Physical how? Well, in the sense of if the technology allows you to jump into another person's consciousness, then the consciousness doesn't exist in the brain. Would, would we say that? I mean, you have to connect your head yeah, to the, it. The consciousness, uh, but if you can somewhat transpose your awareness into something else, into some no, sort of network, I, I see. That's the thing. I disagree because I think it is a physical thing in the sense that you can you can access you can access that person's thoughts and feelings. There, you can touch aspects of that person's consciousness, and if you're able to touch it, it would have to inherently be something physical. But the no, dr- I agree. And, and I agree. It would have to be something physical. And but something I think it, they did is it something in the brain? Yeah, something I think they didn't do enough justice to in terms of like um, the ex- explanation is that the dreamer is technically the architect of controls, these yeah. dreams. So, in a sense, your I mean, there's a machine involved. Everyone has to connect up to it physically. Yeah. So you, but have, you have to get so into even their as head. Ellen like Page's control, even as Ellen Page is designing what this dream is going to look like, she's pulling from yeah Fisher from Fisher's subconscious at all, or from Fisher's consciousness to figure this out. In other words, there's 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 not a base neuroscience to it. There's something more. There there's there's like a physics. I don't I don't know. I don't even know. Well, I wouldn't, like I wouldn't fed, know. There's like a there's like a science. I mean, I'm sure there's been many pages written about the philosophy and the the science of inception i mean it's a fantasy film but obviously nolan somewhat mm. likes to focus in somewhat book. of science yeah. yeah like interstellar he definitely hired maybe not the best physicist but he got a physicist bill for nye <laughs> bill nye doesn't i don't think bill nye even has anything beyond a bachelor's degree he's just a, he's got a degree in being bill nye um, um but so my problem with that is, like, that's, that's great. And it, it asks those questions about, like, you, you could take away from it what you will. Like, a great storyteller uh, makes you take away from the story what you will. And it makes you ask questions about consciousness and the way. And the reason this movie freaked me out is, like, you've talked about this on the podcast before. The nature of consciousness is, like, my biggest phobia. I don't even know if that is, like, what that is described as. But consciousness in itself is a phobia of mine. Mm. Um, like, The Matrix freaks me out because, like, the entire idea of the world being designed around you is fake, is freaky to me. My problem, and my one problem, and after just admitting this movie's fucking terrific, is you focus in all of your drama at the end. You know, after the story with 
Fisher and, and, you know, incepting yourself into Fisher's subconscious and every level of that subconscious strips away everything else. Mm -hmm. But the main drama is the story of the cops, this Mm -hmm. like Coltiard kind of creation of, uh, you know, um, Leonardo Caprio's cops own subconscious. Like she's not even a real thing. She is him. But the kind of emotional elements that are played into that seem more of a conscious level. Like everything else is just like extracted and base. Mm-hmm. Like as you get further and further down, you get to these base emotions, these base, like it's, it's a violent, unclean, kind of yeah. dirty, falling apart world. Mm-hmm. Yet the world in which the Cobbs lived in for that 50 years is emotionally complex. Yeah. And that is my one strike against this movie, is there's an emotional complexity to what is the main drama in the end of the movie. Like, Fisher's story doesn't really matter in terms of, like, the actual narrative. The, the narrative is about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio dealing with his wife's death, dealing with, you know, trying well, to bring the back nature his of his, yeah, his... the nature of his nature, wife's death. Like yeah, that the, nature he, of, the nature of what is real, he, the consciousness But he of also it. pushed the boundaries of the, of the technology in order to manipulate his wife into doing something that he wanted her to do. And in yeah. doing so, he broke her and she killed herself. So he is kind of... Um, dealing with the guilt and the, everything of that. Dealing with the guilt, which is actually, I think, a key thing. Uh, which is another thing I don't think they hammer... They, he talks about the guilt. Like, he actually says the guilt, the guilt, the guilt. And that guilt has manifested itself in um, violently in the sense that Maul also finds him guilty and is trying, trying, to, to, info- him, and yeah. trying to actively destroy... Which and he hopes that he has self trying to kill himself. Yeah. Trying to kill himself, yeah. But my problem with this is that is this movie, and and this is interesting in the sense that I'm noting a flaw based upon the backbone of such a well constructed movie. Usually, I'm able to scrub these things away yep. because they're not they're just under the Silver Lake. I could easily forgive because it's you know a mishmash gelatin of a film um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But this is so complex. And I'd I, I like to hear your thoughts, being on your list, that this is an emotionally complex feeling that mm-hmm. is then reduced. It is at its base level. It's in the subconscious. But this is something that is such a complex, conscious thought mm-hmm. that I don't understand within the world of Inception how this exists only as base level. So I would argue that I think that's one of the reasons why I like this movie so much, because it burrows it there's a there is a complementary reduction in both the plots so in one you have fisher all the stuff like so all the action like the three levels of dream all boils down to this pinwheel made out of newspaper it looks like you know what i mean that he finds at his father's bedside um it's just everything goes it just oh. funnels down into this thing based around rupert nurberdock Huh. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's a little. That's a clever. We're talking about Easter eggs. That's clever, probably. But does it under? I, I don't want to go. We'll get. <laughs> no, we don't have to get into. That. I don't want to go down I the just, Easter egg rabbit hole yeah. because I'll, I'll never come back out. And then in the Cobb Mall story, it burrows down to this r- real sense of guilt that he but, has for what he for what he did to her. But I still say that, like, with Fisher's story, there's like that comes down to a base level like like it, it, it abstracts itself to a singular moment mm-hmm. 
and with the the mall and um dom story it's so much more complex than that there's so much more layers to that like an onion yeah, Correct, and so you're saying that we don't get enough of the onion. We don't get enough. We don't get to see enough of the layers. No, 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 no. no. Of... It's 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 not that. It's just it, that that thing is resolved at its basis level, right? Like at the level of the subconscious is resolved. But, but that's what... still so complex compared to the. But here's world what I would say it. though: is that she's dead. What he is confronting there is a pro- himself, yeah. is a projection of her. So he just has to confront. He's. Ellen Page is essentially asking him to confront once and for all something he confronts literally every day of his life that we've seen him confronting at every level of this of this dream um, in all of the jobs that he's doing. You know what I mean? From the first kind of trial run he does with Saito to, you know, the end of the movie where Maul comes in her snow camouflage and stabs um, Fisher's character. You know what I mean? Like... He, he's always confronting it. So he literally just has to sit down at a table and essentially tell himself the thing that he's been thinking for however long this has been going on for. Like, you don't get an exact time frame as to how long he's been away or when he, you know, killed Maul yeah. or whatever, or when Maul died. Um, he's known this. This has been, this is the thing that's been buried in his subconscious and he's just had to literally get... To go there, not just with the elevator, which is an interesting, it's an interesting thing about the elevator versus the beach. So the beach is almost the hard way, where the elevator is the easy way. You know what I mean? He has to go the distance. He has to tackle every aspect of this um, and confront it on that level rather than just kind of like taking an elevator down and then like going back up. You know what I mean? He has yeah. to like he has to be there and he has to do the work and he has to confront this thing fully, which he's never had to do. Um, and so while that's not that doesn't seem as complicated as everything else that's kind of come before it, it is emotion. It, it's emotionally impactful in a way that I don't. It does seem complicated. It's just that's my problem. Is it is very complicated. Mm. You think it's too complicated for where it, the level it's at? I don't know. I, I'm perhaps reading more into the movie. I mean, I think I think it I works. Think it, it works on a narrative level, but like it, it doesn't work on a world building level, which is it's it's a it's a really base complaint of it. Well, I think that's a, it's interesting to think about it that way in the sense that at some point the world building stops and he just has to confront the emotions of it. Yeah. But he's literally spent every moment of the movie up until that point building <laughs> the world up. And then he's asking. He just kind of stops doing it to say, like, "Well, I just have to confront a real emotion. I need, I need to like wrap this up and yeah. figure out a way to like deal with an actual film arc, right? <laughs> I, need, I need a climax. Um, and um, but that's that's. But I, I raise that complaint to talk about just how much of a work this is. Um, this is a great. I mean, this is an all-time fact, great movie. The fact that our my complaint might. Most significant complaint about this movie, besides like you know the uncanny valley of a city folding in on itself, is that it doesn't pay credence to its own world building in service of the story, which is absolutely an excusable thing to do. Um, speaks volumes to just how much of an exceptional film this is, um, and it was nominated for best picture. And lost. He stuttered. 
He was really stuttering. The King's hard. speech. Mario. Let's talk about. Let's talk about. I, I want to wrap this up with a, <laughs> as we often do with a. You know, for as I guess, I guess, I guess we have to say this. I guess we do care about the Oscars in the sense that we shit on the Oscars so much. I care about the Oscars, and I feel like we had this conversation a little bit when we were talking about. Um, we care about the Oscars because we want to. I was talking about this. I've talked about this a lot with you and with like a lot of other people in reference to Get Out. In terms of the Oscars, have especially this in this year is another. Are you also getting years example. away from Get Out and realizing that it's also kind of a masterpiece? Or are you going? No, the other way? I don't love. I don't. I'm getting years away from Get Out and realizing how much more I like that movie. I like Get Out. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I. I but I but think it's much say. better than I thought it was in. Here's 20, what I would say. I would say. I would say this: that if you, if the Oscars wanted to be, and I've said it before on this podcast, if the Oscars want to be culturally relevant, you have to award the culturally relevant movies. If you want to just literally be a movie about making about uh, you know. Oscar movies, if or whatever the definition um, of an Oscar movie is, if you want that to be your thing, then you give Green Book an Oscar, and then you give well, the King's Speech an Oscar. Well, I think I think the um, thing the thing is is like two twenty two to twenty seven year old men sitting here listening to this podcast who are going to do this podcast in ten years might talk about Get Out. They will not be talking about The Shape of Water, right? And that's and that's the that's. Always you know, been the we question. love Guillermo del Toro here. It's just Guillermo del Toro made his masterpiece before The Shape of Water. He made several masterpieces yeah. before The Shape of Water. <laughs> um, um, I mean, the, I mean, Hellboy Two is a a way better movie than The Shape of Fucking Water. The movie we talked about two weeks ago is a significantly better movie than The Shape of Water. Sure, um, but that's but there is like King's Speech is a fine movie. Tom Hooper. Was a fine director. Colin Firth is actually Colin Firth. I'd actually argue was really, really good in that. That movie is sure. Colin, like I would have no problems with Colin. Like Colin Firth gave the Oscar there. Not gonna really. I'm fine with that. You know. But like, oh man, the fact that you know, well, in the year of a movie's existence, and I, I think we're becoming more self-aware of this as social media gains prominence. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know, 2010, social media was ramping up. But, you know, like, by 2017, people knew that the big movies of that year were Get Out and... Um, You're talking about at Oscar time? Yeah, Get Out and... Uh, well, 2017, not 2017, right? 2017, yeah, 2017 was Get Out and... I'm trying to think of some other movie that's culturally relevant for 2017. Not really many others. None. But, like, last year, Black Panther. Like, as much More as- Black Klansman. Yeah, Black Panther, Black Klansman. Movies that are socially relevant, socially on the beat. Maybe not to Bradys and Ellis, but to other people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's interesting to see, like, has the world kind of changes itself and has the world shapes itself, you know, the Oscars kind of are starting to reflect that in a bit, in a way. Um, A movie like Inception would not have been nominated for Best Picture in 1992. No, but a movie like Inception probably would have won Best Picture in 2018. Don't you think? If Inception came out this year, don't you think everyone's just kind of... If if you really don't... No, it still would have lost to Green Book. I I I still think we're in the world of Green Book winning. Because Bohemian Rhapsody... I don't know. I mean, it's because then uh, Black Panther would have won. No, because Black Panther is not Inception. But we're not. It's awarded. not Inception. No, but we're not. See, that's the thing. 
We seem more culturally aware of what these things mean. Now. Let's talk really quickly about how bad 2010 was, though, for the Oscars. Well, 2010's I mean, a bad. King's Speech won. 127 Hours was nominated, and I was fine. I mean, that should have been nominated for Best Director. I mean, the question about like, Nolan doesn't even get nominated for Best Director. Right. Of the year. Look, I mean, I actually think the biggest problem with 2010's Oscars is that yeah, Colin Firth won, and that's only okay because Ryan Gosling didn't get nominated for Blue Valentine, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to say. Insane. I was going to say, Derek Kean France should have been in the conversation. Blue Valentine should have been nominated for Best Picture. Its problem, I think, I think Blue Valentine's problem ultimately is its NC-17 rating. Just for being too good? No, it just, it doesn't, like... For being a, too certain, emotionally painful? The Academy is always balancing its, its pop culture relevance, and you're never going to be pop culture relevant when uh, NC-17 movie is one of your... It's like, it's the reason Michael Fassbender isn't nominated for Shame, which or, he should have been. Right. You know? It's, it's the reason Steve McQueen isn't doesn't have two Oscars, which, I mean, I, he should have won for shame, but he should have definitely been nominated for it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, I accept that there is a certain necessity to be relevant within the, you know, discussion of the world that you can't give Blue Valentine or shame or films like that, of that creed, you know, an Oscar. I kind of Why I, Blue yeah. Valentine's rated NC-17 is Michelle Williams fucking beyond me. That movie should Oscar not be... Yeah, but that movie should not be rated NC-17, for one thing. There's, what's, what's going on in that movie that necessitates an NC-17? I don't know. Nothing. NC-17's a stupid fucking I don't know where, why... I mean, that's the thing. I, don't ever, I, I personally don't ever think about ratings, so I can't say that this movie didn't get nominated because of NC-17-ness. But I just know that, like, David O'Reilly... Like, The Fighter is a Garbage. movie. You know what I mean? I mean... Like, Black Swan is Darren Aronofsky's second... Maybe his worst movie. I like I like Black Swan, but I would agree it's his it's a worst movie over Noah. I think Noah. I really like aspects of Noah, and I think Noah really went for it. Like it Noah does go for Noah it. Noah yeah. is crazy. Black Swan's safe, but and, it's got some nice images. Like, probably one of the worst Coen brother movies, which is but it's got a ton know, of nominations. Which is well, but still, like saying the worst Coen brothers movies is like saying the worst flavor of mint chocolate ice cream. No, that's spoilers. not like that because spoilers, mint chocolate love, ice cream is I, disgusting. Mario. Podcast over. <laughs> I'm out mint, on the mint, mint ice cho- cream. Mint chocolate no, ice cream? Really? That's fucking disgusting. Fine, Terrible. What's, what's the flavor of ice cream you like? Chocolate chip cookie dough? I like salty pretzel. I don't like salty pretzel. You gotta go up the street Do you like, to, you uh, like caramel? Uh, I like, like caramel, uh, yeah. It's like saying the worst flavor of caramel ice cream. They make this at Sweet Claws in Cheshire. They make this ice cream called uh, cashew caramel. And it's it's my new ice cream. Well, that's... that's Oh, cashew caramel. I haven't had that one. <laughs> Whew. I thought you were talking about pretzel. Salty pretzel is also very good. It has caramel in it. I don't know. That's not a salty ice cream guy. That's so not my thing. But it's it's a weird year. Um, well, it's a weird year in the sense that they had an opportunity to really give a lot of... Like, Inception was really complicated. About, it was well-regarded intellectually and also made a shit ton of fucking money. Yeah. So what is it that so the King's like, Speech is doing that Inception wasn't doing that? What made movies are we talking about? What movies are we talking about from 2010 now? Well, two, I mean, to, uh, Toy, Toy Story, Story 3. 3. Yeah, as I say, Toy Story 3 Which is 3 about to get ruined as Toy Story 4 comes out. Yeah, that like, movie. And maybe, I don't know, Tangled? And like, then you have like the introductory, well, the so, well, the you have the introductory films of like Dog... Well, Social Network. Nobody talks about Social Network anymore. <clears throat> I mean, I think we talk more about Dogtooth and Incendies. You mm. know, the first major reflections of um, American cinema from foreign directors... Uh, Dennis Villeneuve and, and Yorgos Lafamos more than we talk about the social network well the social network is a stupid movie 
like I think we as a society really wanted to have social network really mean something, but as it turns out, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, especially as we realize that you know, well, as it, um, I, I can't remember the guy's name, the Facebook guy. Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. As we realize Mark Zuckerberg is just a joke. It's not even that Mark Zuckerberg is a joke, even though Mark Zuckerberg is a joke. It's that... Fucking take that, Mark Zuckerberg. The social network... We don't have a Facebook. <laughs> Pivotal the so, film. The social network assumes that we value social media in a certain way. And in reality, social media has become... Or, or social networking has become a, um, a much more... <sighs> divisive... Yeah, entity than it was back then. You know what I mean? Like the social network means something different now. The social network is a problem rather than a really good idea. Yeah. So the social network is actually and is it, generally culturally regarded as a bad idea. And beyond that, it's just David Fincher being kind of lazy. That's a lazy fucking movie. I did, I thought it sucked when I saw it. Oh, so I hate it. I, I, I mean, hate it. I can't. Really. I mean, I'm trying to think of my. My favorite movie for that year was probably Blue Valentine and Winter's Bone. And Winter's and Winter's Bone's like another good movie. Yeah, you know. But no, we just. I think the discussion that should end here is is it's interesting now. To say that, I mean, has the evolution of the social network in itself, and you know, our our consciousness of social media, but more just has we have a discussion in the moment. I mean, I think. Inception kind of falls to the wayside slightly. I don't think we talk about Inception as it's much. Just, it's too hard. It's too difficult. So, yeah, the thing I find most interesting um, is just like we're 10 years now removed from Inception, about. Mm. Yep, almost. A decade. And it, like you said, like this movie is definitely a bigger contender now. And it's that's the one thing about film. And art, I guess, in the modern world. And I don't know, maybe maybe people have had this opinion throughout the centuries. But it's interesting to watch this, like, fast evolution of it. Um, well, yeah, we want it to be a fast evolution, and it's not evolving as fast as we'd like to be. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it is evolving really fast, and it's just evolving in a terrible way. <laughs> but, you know, films like Inception or uh, whatnot, we, we feel like would be more prevalent. I mean... Do we think in 2019 the kids are all right gets nominated for best picture? Maybe. I mean, the kids are all right is an, the kids are, the kids are all right is a problematic movie. Probably not socially in the sense that I doubt that. It's not. Yeah, it's not I problematic. Doubt they, I doubt that a certain aspect of the culture would accept the idea that um, Julianne Moore's character kind of skips around between being. But maybe. Or that Mark Ruffio is allowed to be a person in any movie outside of Boston. <sighs> But maybe they. I mean, but maybe they would. Maybe that stuff now is so fluid that the kids are all right. Speaks even more to a group of people oh, I who forgot, feel I forgot kind of he voiceless. Got, I actually forgot he got nominated for that movie. Why he's good? He's good, but yeah. Also, Jeremy Renner got nominated for the Town. Well, that's, but he's he was on a roll then. <laughs> yeah, the Hurt Locker was only two years before. <laughs> no, a year before. Year before. Hurt Locker is twenty two thousand yeah. um, um. So he's. I mean, it's just. It's kind of. I mean, two thousand. I just think it's. I think the proficiency of this movie. I think 2010 and 2011. I mean, the sorry. Go ahead. Here's another thing. I think we talked about last week about the Revenant versus Spotlight. I think this is another one of those things where, like, in 2000, if Inception came out in 2019, basically, I mean, the special effects would be different. Would be a little better. 
So let's say it's the same movie with a little better special effects. I think you'd be having a kind of whatever movie you want to versus Inception kind of argument here, where one of them is a kind of classicist, spotlight, green book, whatever kind of movie, and one of them is a boundary-pushing um, expression of pure cinema. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think where, I think the thing that's interesting is I, I don't... I don't know. I think, like, the, the Academy, and the Academy's a good reflection of, of art, like, almost in general, is, um, you know, you compare, like, 2010 to something like 2016, where the most awarded film in 2016 is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, which, is, which is awesome. Yeah. And, like, you have, you have films that probably aren't really nominated. Like, The Martian probably doesn't get... I mean, I think so. Awarded. I mean, you know, and like repair, like like the, the the philosophy of 2016, like leading in 2017, 2018, compared to like back then. I think we have such. Different, well, here's. I mean, so it's such a different world, isn't it? I think yeah, especially because Deborah Granick would 100% be nominated for Winter's Bone. Over. Yeah. Joel Ethan Cohen probably I mean, people over still, David O. Russell I mean, over maybe Winter, maybe Winter's over, Bone is a lesser. Film. I mean, Winter's Bone is a more. Um, I, I forgot her movie with Ben Foster. Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace is a lesser film than Winter's Bone. I mean, like Winter's Bone makes Jennifer Lawrence. Right. I mean, David O. Russell, for as shit of a director as he is, and yeah, I will lean into that statement. I will join you with leaning into David O. Russell. If David sucks. Russell, David O. Russell, if he asked to be on this podcast, we'd actually refuse. I would let him on the podcast, but I, no, I, I have, refuse. I, have a I will leave this podcast. It wouldn't be one I will of those not be in that episode. Sycophantically, just kind of be like, "Well, this movie was really good." I'd be like, "You made Three Kings, and then you made a bunch of garbage for twenty years." Three Kings is also Answer. just. Three Kings is also just all right. Three Kings is also David O. Russell fucking sucks. Like he was such a shit on I Heart Huckabees, and like everyone says, there's no reason for him to be a shit. Well, I mean, the, besides the fact Huckabees that Dustin Hoffman, like Dustin Hoffman sucks, but beyond that fact, but, like I mean, Three Kings is Three Kings is is a really, really, really interesting movie. It's Three interesting, Kings but is, it's okay. No, but I think it's I think it's a little better than okay because I think it plays with a lot of um, tropes that we had come to expect from movies of that era. War movie specifically, it leaned into – it was a war movie that knew what it was about. You know what I mean? It, like from even from like a script perspective, it was way different in the sense that the Americans weren't just like the, hero, like the general heroes that they're no, yeah. generally portrayed as. You know what I mean? It was kind of like we understand you what got, our – You got Spike Jones. We got, you got Spike uh, Jones. Actor uh, Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, and Nora Dunn. Where'd she go? It understands what it's supposed to be and it is, it is that thing um, – Throwing into the face of all the other war movies that have ever been made about like what the nature of war really is. Yeah, but flirting with disaster. I heard Huckabee's The Fighter, Silver Lang's Playbook, American Hustle, and Joy. All those movies fucking stink. Thumbs down. David uh, or Russell, we kind of hate you. We're just not David or Russell people. No, I don't. I don't yeah, well, nobody. Mean, nobody. People, I would. Somebody, act, people are. I would actively argue that people should not be David or Russell. I people. agree with you, but some people are. But I think the bigger question is that. There would be more if you transport 2010s films to, and this is true of a lot of awards. I mean, Blue should, Valentine gets nominated. Blue in, Valentine in the, gets nominated because of Man, Manchester. Inception, if, if Manchester by the Sea gets nominated, then Blue Valentine gets nominated. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, Toy Story three gets a little more notice. Toy Story three maybe sneaks a director nomination. Toy Story three maybe gets in the conversation of one of these four movies can win Best Picture. Yeah, kind of like this year where like. 
We don't know what's going to win. We think it's going to be this. It ended up not Black, being that. Black Swan probably wins that year. No, Black Swan does not. No, even but register. We're, we're in 2018, man. Mm-mm. In 2018, we're green. We're a David Fairley movie. And I then, disagree. Uh, I disagree. I think Natalie Portman maybe still wins the Oscar. Oh, easily. I think. But Black Swan. I think it's just it's up to her and Black Swan Jennifer is maybe Lawrence. the ninth movie. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, that movie worked. He definitely, Darren Aronofsky definitely doesn't get nominated for best director. It's an. I think. I think a, beautiful. I think beautiful gets more in the conversation. You think I so? think beautiful gets a picture nomination. It's just. I mean, this is a really interesting year in the sense that it had a bunch. Especially of... Especially with like, like Arnuto probably gets in that conversation for beautiful. Even though beautiful is kind of like a lesser movie of his, like, but since then, everything re-nominate with Arnuto because he has such like a visual style. I just think there's a lot more. Inter- a lot Babel. of these. A lot of these movies that are nominated. It's, it's, this is a good year to have this conversation, I think, because a lot of these movies that are nominated, I actually think, are pretty. This is a pivotal year. These are pretty good. Like, Wink to these, the mic. These are actually pretty good movies, um, except for the ones that we've decided are pretty good, like The Fighter. The, like The Fighter, but like you know, Black Swan. The kids are all right. Beautiful. Even like even King Speech, which ends up, even King Speech was a good movie. It it's just inter- not a great. movie. It was an interesting movie in how the camera was always sideways. Um, but, but it has two, like, if you trans- three really good performances. If you transpose too. the nature of the culture onto the nature of the current culture onto this slate of movies, you get a totally different. You get a totally different thing. No one would give a fuck about the King's Speech in 2019. No, you know what I mean? They just wouldn't because nobody it's, cares. It's a ninth picture. It's 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 the last. Like, I mean, this is where if we were Brady Snell's, we'd have a conversation about like how the Obama administration juxtaposed on top of. Like the culture at that time allowed us to think that something like the King's Speech was good because we didn't have to think about what mattered. We could just think about what was technically proficient and not what was culturally relevant. Oh, in two, oh back, back when the world made sense? Right. Where in post-Trump, we, every award, every Super Bowl, every women's college basketball NCAA tournament champion, like Final Four game that UConn doesn't win is a reflection on the fact that the world doesn't make any sense anymore what the hell are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? Um, where, it almost, so seems, look, like, it almost at, seems like the leader of the free world, quote-unquote, uh, makes, makes a lot of sense in the cultural relevancy of the discussions happening, huh? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it does. It's, I weird. Mean, it's almost like Trump actually, the election of Trump actually does matter. Brett Easton Ellis. Fuck you. <laughs> I think that's, a, I mean, to bring it full circle, the yeah. problem with White is that he simultaneously says that the election of Donald Trump matters and doesn't matter. At the same time. Well, the problem with White in full, like ending this conversation as we get to the closure is the fact that somebody, like the New Yorker, New Yorker article said, maybe you shouldn't have written a movie. Maybe you shouldn't have written a book about politics if you, you know, didn't care about politics. And he, I think he agrees with you. He does. Because <laughs> all he just says is like, I got punked. All Brett Easton Ellis does is show his age by referencing Some something punk, from yeah. 2000. By re- referencing a Dax Shepard vehicle. That was that was that was at, was that Dax Shepard? Dax Shepard was one of like the like the guys that oh. did like the punking. I just yeah. know that as Ashton Kutcher. Well, he did. I mean, even Ashton, like, well, yeah, yeah, no, I know you're right, but Ashton Kutcher would even be like, "That's dated." <laughs> That's a really dated reference. You would stop taking pictures of stuff and be like, "Also, has we closed this episode?" One of my favorite—that's one of my favorite celebrity relationships—is Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis, just because like I grew up on like uh, that '70s show, and to have them actually get together in real life was satisfying. It was really sad. Yeah, it was like it's kind of like one of those like you have those Lego pieces, and you're like, oh, these don't fit, and you kind of fit them together. And you're like, mm, looks good. Like, uh, yeah. there you go. Good. good work. You want to talk about Lego pieces? You can uh, tweet us <laughs> at pivotal at Twitter. 
dot com slash film pivotal. If you try to tweet us at Pivotal Film, you probably tweet. I don't know what'll happen. It's probably a pornographic website. So, do you um, think? Do we actually think seventy percent of the internet is porn? Yeah, why not? Porn and shopping. Chopping. Shopping. Well, porn shopping. Naked. We, naked woodcutting. Have we actually talked about the chopping mall remake? I think after this podcast is done, me and you write, rewrite a Chopping Mall remake, and that's how we get into Hollywood. I think we're already in. No, but like, I think we need to rewrite Chopping Mall. I've been wearing Have, you, seen, have, you, have you ever seen Chopping Mall? No. So Chopping Mall is a, is a 1970s ge- 1980s gem starring um, Dick Miller. You know Dick Miller? Yeah. You better know Dick Miller. Um, about... Uh, a mall, after it's closed down, they have three security robots. Let's call them Martys to bring it full circle to the stop and shop conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop and shop. Stop and shop conversation. Uh, who patrol, but then they get struck by lightning. Uh, I believe one of the scientists actually working at the mall is David Cronenberg. Ooh. Um, and the robots go crazy. They just go around just killing people. And... I kind of think this movie needs to be remade. Like, we're remaking fucking Child's Play, like, which looks great. Like, I'm a movie geek, but the Child's Play remake is going to be fucking fun. You got Aubrey Plaza and Brian Terry Henry. We've spent Henry. a lot of time talking about this on this podcast. Oh, yeah. We're Our gonna... excitement over the Child's Play. Well, no, my <laughs> excitement and your, like, confusion. No, I just don't care. <laughs> I just don't the, care. A new trailer came out yesterday. I it know. Sounds, uh, two days ago. Sorry. We're talking in Saturday terms. Uh, it's going to be great. Mark Hamill's voicing whatever Chucky's called now, buddy. I mean, I, I, he's not Chucky now. I love that because Mark Hamill is also like featured. His voice is featured heavily in that new Star Wars trailer. Did you see the new trailer for Child's Play? I did not get a chance to watch After we finish this podcast, you're going to watch it. <sighs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, um, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Anyway... If you want to tweet us, tweet us at Film Pivotal. Uh, if you tweet us at Pivotal Film, it's probably a porn site. So I'm not cutting any of that out, so you just said that twice. Yeah, I know. Uh, or you can uh, message us at PivotalFilmPodcast at gmail.com. You can go to PivotalFilm.com and see We it. lost all 40 listeners that joined us for our <laughs> Hellboy had, episode. They had high hopes after the Hellboy episode, and they're just like, Ugh, <laughs> They're just like, I'm not doing this. Is, under the Silver Lake and a Guava Lake. It's all relevant. Look for the we got Easter eggs planted all over this this bed. Yeah, yeah, um, go to pivotalfilm.com. We have links uh, to how you can subscribe to us. Do links to our Twitter. You can see a list of the movies on our list. If you go um, H five to G four, uh, you'll find us there too. Yeah. Um, until then, you know. I don't want until then. What the fuck does that mean? Uh, until the next episode. <laughs> Actually, next week, guys, you're you're in for a treat. Next week, you're going to get a Friday episode. As we talk about Avengers Endgame. And two movies that you definitely don't want to see. Are on our list? Try to imagine what those are. No, those movies are one of my my movie's great. No one wants to see that movie. The movie's great. No. <laughs> There's some French movies in their life. <laughs> yeah, that's what that movie is. It's just a French movie. Okay. You know, in the go post-apocalyptic world, you gotta get think, some French. Figure out what those movies are, go see them, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>